Yeah, so here's another chance for the Pacers. They got a score here. This will be their last chance really to get a two. And George goes for a deep oh, three and hits wow. it. What a shot by George. I mean, that was a 28-footer going to his right. Such a difficult shot. Uh, and now it's a one-point game. If they Even if Cleveland scores here, they'll have a chance to tie it unless it's a three. And so, so here it is. 3-1 pick and roll again. They set it flat. Get LeBron on Teague. He goes for the icing shot. Can't make it. Great box out by Turner on Thompson, and I hate that I timeout. I would not have called a timeout. Hate that timeout right there. Bring Push the ball up court. you got plenty of time. If you don't have anything, then you can take the timeout. And, they, uh, and this is now their last timeout as and well. And also, Cleveland should put in defensive players here. You get That's an right. opportunity yeah. to change your personnel. I mean, Shumpert, Shumpert should be in here, and Cleveland has two timeouts left, so if they get a stop, they can go off and... Yeah. They did already have their defensive guys in, in fairness. Uh, no no love. But, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a great shot from Paul George. And now, you know, I mean, I think clearly what you got to try and run here if you're Indiana is get Paul George onto Kyrie, involve him in the screening action, make sure you actually set a good screen, Jeff Teague, and then get Paul George on the left side of the floor after that screen try to go one-on-one against Kyrie and just rise over the top. I mean, I think I even would consider here if you can get that matchup on the road, I might just try to run the clock down. Even knowing that you're down by one with since you're at a disadvantage, yeah. I just would it's I wouldn't like mind having one shot. Down too. I wouldn't mind idea. having one shot here for Paul George over a smaller player in a good matchup uh to win this game and go out of here up 1-0 in this and, series. And they might even call a foul. I think that's a very real possibility if you get that matchup. All right, so Teague is going to inbound here. Why is Stevenson still in the game? That's really dumb because he can't shoot. They should should have put in a, a better shooter there. Now they, And LeBron is guarding Stevenson, so he can just help off him. Interesting that uh, they're still going with J.R. Smith on Paul George, even for this last possession. Smith has had more success, frankly, but LeBron also a better help guy. So here's George. Against Smith, is there going to come a screen, or is he just going to go? There's LeBron with the double off of Stevenson, like we talked about. Great double team. It's a good strategy, and then they call the foul. Not in the bonus, so not not a killer foul there. That's uh, They're going to have to inbound again, and now uh, with no timeouts left, they basically are just going to have to call something from the bench. Uh, now you're, they're not going to get Stevenson out now either, even though they just double teamed off him. Come on, McMillan. like You should be smarter than this. Yeah, I mean, they, you know what's coming up here, and, oh, wow. I mean, so 10.6 left. Here's the inbound to George up top. LeBron getting ready to come on the double again. They got to put it in C.J. Miles' hands. Tough shot, and he doesn't make it. Terrible strategy by Indiana. Great strategy from Cleveland. LeBron outsmarted them completely. They didn't guard Lance Stevenson. We said they weren't going to guard Lance Stevenson. He shouldn't have been in the game. Paul George had to give it up. No advantage was gained. He didn't even throw it to an open guy. That was just horrible from the Pacers all the way around. And they didn't even put Lance Stevenson in a position where he could get the pass and like take a drive to the basket or something. Like you can you can take advantage of that double team in a and, couple and different you, ways. They they fouled. You knew what the strategy was going to be. Get him out of the game after the first foul. You had a dead ball. Oh man, that is just awful. Like I mean. And, you know, you were just listening. We said this beforehand. This is not second guessing. It was, this is obvious stuff. Yeah. It's, and it, it's so disappointing for the, for the Pacers because they played very well, especially offensively, but defensively, I would say down the stretch too, they got the benefit from some misses and to see it swing on a 
absolute abject failure from a coaching perspective on the last play is such a shame. Well, and I, I think that they, you know, Cleveland deserves credit for their strategy. Oh, absolutely. Well. They took it. Uh, they took advantage yeah. of the opportunity that was presented to them, and full credit for that. Well, and you know, it's very interesting because both the Pacers organizationally and McMillan here don't understand a, a fundamental aspect of basketball, which is if you have a playmaker who's not a good shooter, it doesn't help to have him in the game unless he has the ball in his hands, right? Like, their whole team is built around this. They have all these guys, Ellis, Teague, oh, these guys are great playmakers, high points per game, we'll have a great offense if we just get all these guys together, but they can't all have the ball, and when they don't have the ball, you don't have to guard them because they're not good shooters, and so that's a, a, a principle that has undermined their entire season, and it undermined their game today as well. So that, as you may have guessed from our Twitter NBA show, the inaugural playoff edition, going down the stretch of that Pacers-Cavs game, which is a great way to open the playoffs. Thanks for tuning in here for one of our favorite episodes of the year. We're going to go through all eight of the playoff games that happened over the weekend, give you our detailed thoughts on them, some big upsets. Looks like we're going to have a fine first round in terms of the quality of the series. Don't forget our sponsors today, Texture. Go to texture.com slash capspace for your 14-day free trial with access to hundreds of magazines like Sports Illustrated, Men's Fitness, ESPN, The Magazine, and more all in one place on your tablet or phone. And Betterment. Go to betterment.com slash capspace to get up to six months of no fees for lower-cost automated investing. So, Danny, I'm completely exhausted. It's after midnight now on... Sunday night, we watched all four of these games, six of which we actually did uh, some length of Twitter NBA show for. We also saw the Warriors-Portland game in person and uh, caught up on Wizards-Hawks. But let's get to finish up now uh, this Pacers-Cavs. We played our thoughts on the end of that game, which was really a, a big failure. Paul George saying he wanted to get the ball back that he was hoping that C.J. Miles would pass it back to him after he made the right play. But uh, as we talked about, this was a play where it seemed like the Cavs just outsmarted Indiana down the stretch. Yeah, they outsmarted them when Indiana basically gave them the advantage by keeping Lance Stevenson on the floor. Then he was just infamously standing underneath the basket, which is, you know, not ex I mean, that's a hard pass to make. It's a possible pass, but a hard pass to make. But I don't want that to obscure from the game that especially Paul George had. Paul George was spectacular for a lot of this game, making shots. I thought his defense was solid, you know, not not spectacular, but he did a good enough job. And Thaddeus Young had some really nice stretches in this game, but Cleveland was still he, he was able great to pull defending it out. LeBron, actually. They they, yeah. they ended up actually uh moving George off of LeBron at, at times, uh especially when when he picked up a few fouls. Yeah, Young was was great on LeBron using his strength, LeBron couldn't just kind of power through him. Um, but LeBron still was unbelievable. 43 minutes, 32 points, 12 of 20 from the field, uh, two of three on three pointers, 13 assists, three steals. Uh, so awesome game for him. Only three turnovers as well, which can be one of his few weaknesses. And you mentioned George 41 minutes on his part. 29 points, only five of seven from the foul line, which is disappointing for the 90% free throw shooter, but six of eight on three-point field goals for George, including that huge one that brought them within one 
late. That was an impossible shot going going to his right. Uh, he did get stymied kind of di- down the end, though. Uh, but what's your overall impression of how these two teams played uh, in this first game? Cleveland's defense was decidedly unimpressive, and they still have a lot of time to figure it out. I'm not putting up the the fear siren or anything like that, but Jeff Teague was not himself in this game. It was, I mean, it was a shortish turnaround. He was got hurt late in the game on Wednesday, and then this game was the first one on Saturday. So I I don't know if that'll carry on in the series. But they didn't get a get great game from Jeff Teague. Paul George was efficient offensively. Lance Stevenson was great, but it wasn't like Indiana was really forcing the issue. It was more that Cleveland was allowing them to do it. But at the same point, Kyrie Irving did not have a great game. And so you think that that can go in Cleveland's favor and they should play better defensively than they did here. Yeah, I think so. Teague, you mentioned, did not look right on that ankle. He tried to accelerate a few times in transition, just did did not have it, did not have the juice and did will his way to 15 points. Was only three of 10 from the field, two of five on three pointers. And then what really salvaged his afternoon was seven of seven on free throws. And of course, five of those via the absolute epidemic of getting a foul on a jump shot, which, you know, I mean, the league just got to do something about that. Uh, it's it's getting totally ridiculous. Uh, I'll probably say that once for every single series that we do, just to underscore how annoyed I am by at this point. Well, uh, you know, you can say that Cleveland's D was unimpressive, and both teams on offensive ratings uh, well over 120 in this game. It was a 109-108 Cavaliers victory. Uh, but George shot extremely well on threes. The Pacers as a whole shot 46% on three-pointers. Lance Stevenson, 16 points, 8 of 13 from the field in his 27 minutes. Can you really expect that type of a performance from him again? And a lot of those were tough shots, too. Like Lance was not just getting layups and scoring in that way. He had a, a, a few deep twos, and he, he was 0 for 2 from 3, but, I mean, that's to be expected with him. Yeah, and those twos are not really deep for Stevenson. They're more get to the free throw line and shoot over his guy. Anything outside of the free throw line is really, I mean, that one year that he managed to shoot like 34%, his quote unquote all-star year where he was actually an all-star consideration and then melted down when he didn't make the all-star team, uh, when he somehow shot 34%, looks like a huge outlier so far in his career. Um, The Pacers bench, as we expected, was a problem, in particular their backup bigs. They went with Kaveen Serafin, only played Lavoy Allen four minutes off the bench. Serafin scored well on his own eight points, but was negative eight as well, struggled to guard. Of course, that shooting of Cleveland that we talked about it in the preview podcast. Uh, and really, I, I think that the Pacers' D to me was not that good, uh, that Cleveland really should have won this game comfortably despite their own defensive problems because they went 14 out of 27 from the foul line and love five of eight he'll usually shoot it much better uh, james six of nine that's about where he is this year unfortunately but thompson oh for three uh richard jefferson two for four uh so it, combined it, if they hit a normal amount of free throws this is a more comfortable win perhaps indiana did use an 11-0 run to get back into it late in the fourth but cleveland led comfortably before that so uh, let me ask you this. What did you think of the rotations that Cleveland used? They did play 10 guys. Iman Shumpert was not among them. I was I'm sorry. Supp- they played nine guys. I they played saying. nine guys. Yeah, I was I was going to say. I thought that 
overall, it was fine. They did a nice job of deploying Channing Fry when it was generally when it was Kevin Serafin that was in there, and he he was really able to exploit that matchup. Jefferson was fine. You know, he's not a standout in terms of his overall contributions. He'll have strong nights, and this was not one of them, but he was fine. And Corver, I don't know exactly, you know, like where he fits in in terms of the second unit, because I think you want JR on the four when LeBron is on the four, and Kyle Corver is just kind of a, a he's talented, but he's he's kind of like a less valuable all around JR in that sort of a way. And I always thought he was kind of duplicative with this team. Yeah, I agree with you there. I mean, 15 minutes for Corver, he did get taken advantage a, l- a little bit defensively. There's no really, really for Shumper to guard on this team that you're that worried about. You know, if it's the water bug point guard type, uh, then it, there's a concern. Defensively, I thought J.R. Smith actually did really well on Paul George down the stretch, other than that one really deep three, which was an impossible shot. Uh, Smith locked him down to the point where they had Smith guarding Paul George late, and then that allowed LeBron to roam off of Stevenson on on those last two plays. Uh, LeBron probably more useful as a roamer, not very good getting through screens, which is the number one thing that the Pacers will do for George. I thought that they went with George a little bit too much at the top of the key where he's not really the greatest ball handler, doesn't have a ton of explosion to just shake his guy. He's more comfortable attacking from the angle, either right side or left side, coming off a screen than going to work. And certainly against Smith, where he's at a quickness disadvantage and has the height advantage, you'd want to try and get in the ball either on post-ups or or isos uh, from two-point range on on, uh, the wing angle. Um, you know, I also thought that Irving, uh, they got lucky really that he shot as poorly as he did one and nine from three. The Cavs missed a lot of wide open threes. Yeah, they did make it to 39%. They weren't shooting it very well early, but I think they can even shoot better than that and also get up more attempts as well. I mean, that's the one place where in Indiana, you could say they succeeded in holding them to 28 uh, three point attempts. Something else I wanted to talk about briefly was the Pacers kind of more their backup personnel, just having so much trouble with Cleveland. Aaron Brooks does not really have a place to be in this series. And if if they're going to run the offense through Lance, it's not really, or, or through just basically right. anybody else, Monte Ellis, you just, just don't play him. And then Kavine Serafin, you know, if they're going to play Channing Fry during those minutes, that's going to be a big problem. And they got to play and somebody though, right? Like, I mean, do. who's it going to be as that backup big? Like, I just, I don't know what the alternative is. I mean, I, I trust Lavoie Allen a little bit more than Serafin defensively, but uh, they also are going to struggle to score. I mean, they, it wasn't that bad for them uh, when George was out of the game. He actually was negative two, so they actually uh, did a little bit better with him out of the game, but that's because Lance went wild. He's not going to do that again next game. And, and right. Brooks, you mentioned his, his size. If he's going to be out there against LeBron in that second unit with a bunch of shooters where they're setting all these screens and getting him to switch mm-hmm. on to guys, or, or even worse, if he's got a crash into the lane to try and help which he's not equipped to do and then try and close out he doesn't have the type of length to do that by any means or any strength down there like he's a huge liability also so I think they really should try to go to Monte Ellis more at backup one guard especially because this is a series where I think Ellis can be a little bit more effective uh, because he still can get to the basket a little bit when they give him the ball and Cleveland doesn't have any kind of shot blocking at all. So Ellis is able to finish there. That's probably the biggest issue that he's had in his uh, decline in his 30s. And the guy who can actually scale up his minutes on Indiana's bench, I agree with you that there aren't many guys who didn't play who who could really fill that. 
CJ Miles only played 15 minutes in this game. If you play yeah. CJ Miles 25, 28 minutes and he just gobbles up basically that remainder, you're getting pretty close. I mean, you're putting strain on all of these different players, but I think they can make it work. Yeah, Miles did have five fouls, which limited his time to some sure. degree. But I, I agree. I still would like to see Miles starting over Ellis. I mean, that's just such a small backcourt. Uh, Irving didn't take advantage of that in this game, but I think he could be primed to really uh, play well. Though something to watch is how Irving plays. I mean, that twenty-three points on twenty-seven shots, and then only one free throw attempt for Irving yeah. as well. He had a few of those crazy finishes, but didn't shoot the ball that well and wasn't quite as aggressive. Uh, but he did talked about how his knee had flared up a little bit, his surgically repaired left knee. So we'll see how that uh, ends up ha- happening for him if he's able to, uh, you know, get back to the level that we expect from him based on last year's playoffs. Is there anything else that you think we should talk about from this game? Or are you ready to, I, I, I'm guessing it would be move on to an advertisement. <laughs> uh, you know the rhythms of the show so well. I do think we should t- talk about a little bit more about uh, Thad Young, who actually, when he was on the yeah, floor, they true. did well. Uh, I, I was impressed with his defense, which can be spotty at times, but you know his ability to guard James one-on-one is something they should look at a little more. He only played in the low 30s in minutes, in part because he got into foul trouble, three fouls in the first half, and then didn't get a single foul in the second half as he was spending some time guarding James. I guess we should talk about what potential adjustments both sides might be before we move on. I will say at least that one thing I did like from McMillan, since we were so critical of the end of the game there, uh, was that he matched up uh, Paul George's minutes with LeBron's almost exclusively. And I think that was something that we thought he should do at the start of the series because those bench units with LeBron and all the shooting would be impossible to guard without George in the game. And and, and they did at least do that. And uh, that was part of why they're able to play it to a draw here. But, you, you know, I, I felt that the Pacers to some extent did blow their chance in this game. I would agree with that, especially considering the hot shooting that they got from Lance and, and from Paul George. You're not going to get that every single night, even though, George has been really strong for about six weeks now. So yeah, that was an opportunity. I already talked about the main adjustments I would do. I'd play CJ Miles more and I would actually start him, then have Monte be guard guard the other team's point guard, you know, whether that's Kyrie or Darren Williams, and then have Lance in that lineup and go with basically as many as many wings as they as you can, and they don't have that many of them, but go more in that direction when possible. Oh, and yeah, one other thing. Was yeah. one other thing. If, if when possible, try to put. I don't think they need to put Seraphin. If they can find another hiding place for him, try to avoid putting him on Channing Fry in the first place, if possible. It might not be. Yeah, a couple other little notes here uh, that the Pacers had a nice plan early in their pick and rolls, where uh, they knew that Cleveland was going to be switching, and basically uh, any pick and roll involving Kyrie Irving turns into a switch, whether you want it to or not, because there's just no way he's getting over the screen. Uh, And so what they had their bigs do was set that screen hard still, even though they knew there was going to be a switch and then roll hard to the rim. And if you do that, you can get the guy on your back. And so whether it was George coming down the off a pin down, which is a similar action to a pick and roll uh, or the pick and rolls up top, they're able to hit their bigs on the move with the guy who had just theoretically switched onto them on their back. And, and then Cleveland changed up their style a little bit, started forcing those pick and rolls, especially on the side to the baseline. And they had a little bit more success. And, and then for the Pacers part, I'd like to see them 
go after Irving more than they have, especially with George. I think that they could benefit from slowing the pace down a little bit, uh, kind of play in maybe a similar fashion to how the Cavs played in the 2015 finals against the Warriors, where especially if George is hot, have him go right at Irving and try some small, small pick and rolls there to get the switch of Irving onto George. And then uh, hopefully maybe uh, induce some double teams. But uh, the the unfortunate thing for the Pacers is really, they don't have any spot up shooting other than miles. And that makes it kind of difficult for George to operate. Uh, And uh, Teague has gotten a little bit better as a spot up shooter, but still not a high volume guy. So that's a little bit of a concern. I think overall, while it wasn't the best effort from Cleveland uh, to put up 109, even though they missed 13 free throws. And uh, I didn't expect that Cleveland's D was going to be any good. It wasn't, you know, this idea they're going to flip the switch uh, didn't, they had some okay plays late, but in general, not really. Uh, and, but if the Pacers are just going to try to outscore this Cleveland team, they just don't have enough shooting to do it. And I don't expect that, uh, the Pacers will stay even with Cleveland from the three-point line. They both had 11 makes. Uh, I don't suspect that that will continue at all. And I also don't expect that uh, the Pacers will control the offensive glass as well as they did because the Pacers are a pretty weak defensive rebounding team. Uh, They actually out-rebounded the Cavs 33% to 26% on the offensive glass. I don't expect that necessarily to continue. And now it is time for an ad from our friends at Texture. I always enjoyed reading magazines as a child. One of my favorites is Car and Driver, and I'm uh, thinking maybe I might get a new car, so that's one reason why I've started reading that again. And Texture is a great place to do that. They've got access to hundreds of magazines, Sports Illustrated, Men's Fitness, ESPN, the magazine, uh, more highbrow stuff as well. I think The Economist, The uh, Atlantic, and... If you're going to subscribe to all those magazines, it would cost you a fair amount of money. But Texture uh, is only $9.99 a month, and you can get it 14 days to try it out at that link, texture.com slash capspace, which is easy to remember because we talk about that all the time on the program. Texture was selected as one of Apple's top 2016 iPad apps, and you can search through it. You can mark what you like, check out back issues. There's also bonus content for a lot of magazines available so don't subscribe to just a couple of magazines you can have all your favorites all the time for way less go to texture.com slash capspace for your free 14-day trial that's 14 days to try texture for free when you go to texture.com slash capspace once again texture.com slash capspace memphis san antonio uh we tried to do the twitter nba show for this one in the third quarter and then it instantly Uh, turned into a complete blowout and we had to abandon the idea with uh, San Antonio eventually winning by nearly 30 points, uh, 111 to 82. Big problem for the Grizz was just not being able to score in the final three quarters. They put up 30 points in the first quarter and never exceeded 20 in any quarter after that. Well, you look at the, the kind of the final ridiculous margin of this game and then it sometimes obscures the fact that San Antonio didn't take their first lead until less than nine minutes remained in the first half, and they still won 111-82 to because Memphis couldn't score late, and there was a lot of garbage time in this game, as as can happen against the Spurs. But 
it started out about as well as, as Memphis could have hoped for. They actually had a, a double-digit lead. Marcus Gasol, Mike Conley both looked absolutely fabulous. But the Spurs got better at locking those guys down, realized that nobody else on the team was going to beat them, and just sucked the life out of the game, just like they might do in this series. Yeah, Memphis led it 24-11 to at one point uh, before the Spurs started locking in a little bit defensively. That 24-11 to lead... Uh, was eight minutes into the game. And so really, after that, uh, the Spurs completely locked down. The only Memphian to shoot over 50% in non-garbage time was Gasol, who was unbelievable. 25 in the first half, 32 for the game. Uh, He was 3 of 3 on three-pointers, got to the foul line, uh, 7 of 7, 11 of 18 from the field. Only two assists, though. They're going to need more assists out of Gasol if they're going to compete offensively in the series. And then Conley, he was on fire in that first quarter and then cooled off considerably, actually finished with only 13 points on 15 shooting possessions. So not not very good efficiency, seven assists, three steals for him. And then on the other end, Kawhi Leonard was just absolutely unbelievable with his efficiency. Yeah, I mean... Kawhi is just such a phenomenal offensive talent at this point in his career. He only had 14 shot attempts from the field and still scored 32 points just because he got to the line well. He basically didn't miss any of his shots, was 11-14. And then, of course, is now standard, 9-for-9 nine nine from the free throw line. Yeah, that's one thing he's really done in increasing his usage this year, also increasing his free throw rate. Uh, a mere two turnovers for Leonard as well, considering... Uh, the usage that he had. And then Tony Parker was also spectacular in this game, 18 points on 14 shooting possessions for him. Uh, I mean, now like a lot of these guys, I mean, I remember Darren Williams had a massive game in the 2015 playoffs against Atlanta. It was like, Oh, is D will back? It's like, nah, no, nah, I just hit some shots. And that's what Parker did. He hit two corner threes uh, when he was left wide open. He's really only comfortable shooting threes from the corner. And then his, all of his tough floaters were, were going down. Uh, but, I, I mean, this game put into stark relief. Something when we did our preview, we didn't know that Tony Allen was out. But really, I mean, with Parsons out and Tony Allen, you know, this Memphis team is missing their two starting wings. Their wing rotation right now is pretty miserable. And you've, you, they're starting Vince Carter and Wayne Selden. Wayne Selden, who was signed on, uh, uh, for the rest of the season after making an appearance on a 10-day uh, with New Orleans and had played in the, in the D League for what was one of the worst D League teams in the league. I think that that Memphis uh, Iowa Energy team, uh, and then they also tried to get some ins for James Ennis. I thought actually he was their best guy. One adjustment to me would be have him start and guard Kawhi Leonard. I think he can do the best job of that. Selden's probably a little too small and inexperienced, and Carter obviously uh, too old. And, and uh, Ennis really the only guy you can hope to match up with Kawhi a little bit. Uh, physically, and then, you know, Andrew Harrison, Troy Daniels was negative 29 in 16 minutes, Um, and and then they also didn't get anything out of Zebo, which they desperately need some kind of scoring from him. Right, Zebo in this game was negative 39, 3 of 13 from the field, and I was actually thinking a lot about their other power forward. One of the things I, I brought up late in our part of our preview about that series was can Jermichael Green slow down LaMarcus Aldridge? And I thought overall, LaMarcus had a pretty good offensive game. And, you know, there were plays where Green competed and did a good job. But 
it didn't look like he was affecting Aldridge's comfort level on a possession-to-possession basis. Yeah, Aldridge really got going in the third quarter, also was very effective contesting at the rim. People forget that he's really like a seven-footer, essentially, and he played a little bit more center as uh, Dwayne Dedman got the Keith Bogans. Pau Gasol also wasn't exactly on fire from the field, but did space the floor well, uh, had some nice drives, uh, and uh, ended up 2-2 two two from three-point range. Actually missed all five of his two-point attempts, but he was plus 22 in his 25 minutes. And then uh, Patty Mills was outstanding as well. Three of four from the field, three of three from three-point range, and, and uh, nine points. Really, when Gasol and Mills came in with some of the other main guys is really when the Spurs get a little bit more spacing and become really nearly impossible to defend uh, for most mortal teams. And Memphis is decidedly mortal at, at this point in time. While some of it is attributable to pace, at least this game felt slow. Maybe it wasn't. They combined for 17 turnovers. The Spurs had nine. Memphis had eight. And I mean, the Spurs don't turn the ball over that much in the first place. But that's another way that Memphis can generate offense, but they can't in this series. And I also feel like something else that we have to mention is it was more of a first half thing than a second half thing, but Memphis was absolutely terrible when Andrew Harrison was on the floor in the first half. Yeah, he salvaged his night a little bit with uh, some scoring and garbage time and, and it had uh, only one ugly turnover, but I mean, they just, Memphis doesn't have anybody who can do anything with the ball. Like Harrison was a terrible two point shooter in college and Mike Conley, he's going to mostly a jump shooter. He can draw some BS fouls, you know, with, with uh foul seeking behavior out on the perimeter, but he can't get to the basket and finish the Spurs almost always have two traditional bigs in the game and always have those two traditional bigs around the rim that are going to, they're going to contest. And then Memphis just couldn't get off enough three point attempts either. I mean, only 20 for them. And they went seven out of 20, which is not a bad percentage for this Memphis team, given their personnel. Uh, but, you know, if you take out uh, Gasol and Conley, that's five out of their 20 make or out of their seven makes. And those are the guys who are supposed to be creating. You're supposed to have other guys who are making three pointers. And, uh, you know, only two three pointers by anyone not named Gasol or Conley. Like, that's not going to get it done. Yeah, that's a, that's a big problem, and something I wanted to we talk, we've been talking about adjustments we did for the first series, and we will throughout this. Other than playing Ennis and having him guard Kawhi, is there that much more that Memphis can do? We I floated the idea of starting Zebo and just seeing if it works. I'm not advocating like, oh, that's the solution to solve their problems, but just why the heck not? Yeah, well, he certainly was totally ineffective uh, uh, on his own, and he was getting beat up by those. Uh reserve big men and, and double teamed as well. Um, you know, uh, David Fizdale has been very adamant that they are not going back to that, that, you know, even when they had some struggles, you know, going back to the old way, he said, if we went back to that, it would be even worse. And maybe they can take some solace in the fact that Tony Parker is not going to go eight for 13. Again, the Spurs were 10 out of 19 from three. So that's actually good defense to hold them to 19 attempts. Uh, and the, the free throws were manageable. Kawhi, for all his brilliance, I mean, he's not going to score nearly two points for every shot that he takes. Uh, so that's uh, maybe something they can feel good about. They held the Spurs only 15 or 16 assists, which is not that great. So I think if they defend the same way as they did in this game, uh, they can do a lot better. I mean, the Spurs had a 129 offensive rating but a lot of that I think was just making some pretty tough shots uh in similar fashion to perhaps the way that 
the Spurs beat up the Thunder in that game one last year in the second round. But obviously, you know, that Thunder team has a, a lot more talent. And we talked about it that Memphis doesn't really have the athletes to make this team uncomfortable. I think they should try staying the course again in the next game, see if they can kind of muck things up a little bit. You know, they only had five minutes for Brandon Wright in this game. Maybe his athleticism could help a little bit more. Uh, As I said, I would start Ennis rather than Selden. I think he's both a a better shooter and a better defensive player on Kawhi, uh, a little bit more athletic, Uh, still start Carter maybe as well. And then, you know, bring Selden off the bench. But yeah, I mean, when you just look at some of the guys that are in their rotation and then this Spurs bench is one of, you know, again, another fantastic bench under Greg Popovich's stewardship. It's hard to imagine that, you know, without Conley and Gasol both in the game at the same time. And I mean, the downside for Memphis is Gasol was unbelievable and they still couldn't score in this game. Anything else on this one that you want to say? Yeah, the uh, Memphis really struggled at times in the restricted area, that was was a big problem of theirs as well. Uh, so that's, uh, again, when they don't have the spacing, I mean, they, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure what you do, to, to be honest, uh, if you're them, and just maybe hope that the Spurs uh, aren't as hot uh, in this next game and that, you know, maybe you can get into crunch time and actually, you know, make things kind of difficult. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this game too, obviously, is going to determine the series. It, 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 Memphis has got to at least make it close in this one or we can... Uh, we can say goodbye. And this game, this game's tomorrow, right? Uh, yeah, because you will be abandoning me for the Tour NBA show. I'll get to do this game all by myself. You won't be doing it by yourself for that long. <laughs> well, I think I'll probably actually just do all of Cavs Pacers and then just keep going through uh, Memphis Spurs. And then hopefully it'll turn into a blowout pretty early. And uh, I can just call it quits at, at that point because uh, talking by myself for like six straight hours might be a little uh, a little difficult here uh, as I may be losing my voice already. But uh, yeah, so th- that's enough on, on this series. Why don't we move on here to uh, Toronto-Milwaukee, uh, perhaps the most surprising result of any uh, over the f- this first weekend. Bucks here. <laughs> yeah, and Bucks here in the second half, they took it 97-83, and Toronto had restored order. They led 51-49 at halftime, and then the Bucks scored 51 points in the second half, only 32 for Toronto. Some of the Carnage, that's a 116 offensive rating for the Bucks, 71 for Toronto, and Toronto e-field goal percentage, that's, that includes the value of threes, by the way, 22% over an entire half of basketball. They did get to the line a ton, but their true shooting was still only 36%, which, of course, is miserable. League average is you know, around 54% this year. They turned it over a ton, and uh, it was just an absolutely miserable performance by Toronto as they went 5 out of 23 on threes throughout the game. Level of 1 to 10, how worried are you about these Toronto Raptors who fall to an incredible 0-9 in Game 1 of first-round playoff series? Incredible because they have had home court advantage in like four of those their last five of those series. I'd be at like a four. You know, relative they, they they still have a lot of talent and something you and I have talked about. I think we we discussed this on on the Twitter NBA show is that it takes a lot of adjustment to play the but the Bucks are so aggressive in terms of their pick and roll defense and they're unusual in that way. 
and they have the horses to to compete and to make things hard but going after it time and time again and seeing it makes it easier to adjust and if they're still struggling with it late in game two if they have another fourth quarter that is more than stagnant that is just bad then that four doubles to like an eight but for right now i think they can figure those sorts of things out and the thing that I would actually be more concerned with than scoring 32 points in the se- in the second half is that the best player on the floor for this game was Giannis. Yeah, and given Lowry's struggles in the playoffs, uh, 2 for 11, 0 of 6 on three-pointers in this game, four points in 34 minutes. Uh, and DeRozan really wasn't that much better either, uh, although he started off pretty hot. Yeah, he's a major problem, and... It, you mentioned his line, uh, 13 out of 18 from the field, 28 points for Giannis. And uh, in 38 minutes, he was fantastic. While he had you know three or four dunks, he dunked on like three of their five starters in the first half alone, including just obliterating a Baca on one dunk. Like he dunks from angles that are just, we've never seen in the NBA with the type of length that he has. I mean, he'll just kind of, be off balance on a drive or on a Euro step and just suddenly be able to rise up because of that incredible length that he has. Yeah. And there was that, that picture that the ESPN NBA account tweeted out about him basically dunking with his feet almost on the ground. Like that's the sort of thing that he can do, but he also has such good bursts that he can get up quickly. And I think that if we're going to talk about the players that were impactful in this game, somebody that really stood out to me was Thon Maker. I mean, Milwaukee became the first team since the 2013 Warriors to start two rookies in a playoff game, and both of them looked good in this game. Yeah, I mean, even more so than Maker, perhaps Brogdon, but since you brought Maker up first, he was awful in his first stint, and he got the Keith Bogans, didn't come back in. Uh, he's One of the things that I like about him is his ability to move his feet in pick-and-roll defense, and he actually got abused pretty badly on some drives, so he went out, and then... His stint in the third quarter was amazing. He had three blocks. Guys beat him, and he came back and blocked him from behind. He was sprinting the floor, had a couple of nice buckets uh, in transition. He had a a great steal as well, really looked good defensively. And that is when uh, that first stint is when the game turned. Uh, And then Brogdon, whom you mentioned, four of seven on three-pointers, just continues to hit threes, 16 points on 13 shooting possessions and uh, only had two assists, but that's fine. Chris Middleton picked up the slack there a little bit, but 34 minutes for Brogdon. And then another thing that I was interested to see, and we saw this with Robin Lopez in the Chicago-Boston series as well, was uh, Greg Monroe was able to stay on the floor just fine uh, against the Ibaka center lineups, and he played extremely well with uh, 14 points of his own. He really, uh, and 15 rebounds in 26 minutes, five on the offensive glass. Uh, so he really hurt uh, the Raptors as well, and they weren't able to make him pay by hitting a lot of threes. Obviously, it didn't get enough up, only 23 attempts, and they only made five of them. And in the first half, Jason Kidd's rotation included a lot more of their ancillary big men. Spencer Hawes played six minutes. Michael Beasley played five. I don't think either of those guys appeared in the second half. Nor did uh, Mirza Toledovic, in fact. And uh, it was really only Monroe... Delhi and a little bit of Jason Terry uh, in this the second half off the bench, which I thought w- was a good adjustment for them. 
foul trouble may force them to go in another direction. But uh, I thought that really the rotations for Kid were pretty good uh, in as they they also did a nice job of slowing the pace down on their own offense once they got the lead. Uh, used Chris Middleton to get into the post. Middleton was only four out of fifteen, uh, but he was able to slow the pace down and and had nine assists because they ended up feeling like they had to double him a little bit. And one reason why that was so effective at the start of the fourth, the Lowry plus bench unit really killed it uh, in the second quarter after the Bucks broke out to a 30 to 22 lead in the first. Uh, But then uh, Middleton was able to go into the post against Corey Joseph and and Joseph did not play well, uh, had uh, in addition to some defensive problems, He was only one out of five and and only took one three-point attempt in 27 minutes. Uh, One of the adjustments that I would point to for Casey is because Joseph uh, is not being guarded, if he's in the weak side corner, that really plays into the aggressive Bucs defense where they love to both trap it on the pick and roll and then bring a guy all the way over from the weak side to grab the roll man and just force very difficult passes. And if you do get it to Corey Joseph all the way on the weak side, you're not that worried about him shooting it. So uh, Casey, in a last-ditch effort, did uh, exhume Norman Powell, who ended up playing six minutes down the end, going two of four, a little bit of garbage time at the end there. But uh, rather than playing Joseph and Lowry together, I might consider going to Powell instead, who has a little bit more size and length to guard Middleton and is also a superior spot-up shooter to Joseph as well, if not quite as pesky of a defender, at least on point guards. They should also start P.J. Tucker. I mean, P.J. Tucker did the best job guarding So, so you're not even going to start Valanchunas at all, huh? Well, no, you could you could start Valanchunas and not start Damari Carroll. I mean, you could do it a couple oh, different directions. Oh, you're going to start him at the three? Yeah, start, they did e- start out yeah. they, they did I, I start out with Carroll guarding Giannis, and that was really a bad matchup because Carroll is just, as we've seen against, you know, when he's tried to guard LeBron James in his Hawks days, and, and of course last year as well for the Raptors, he's just too skinny despite having been a college power forward to really deal with uh, these big wings in the post. So yeah, I do think that there is some merit to that. Um, I mean, I also might consider if our Casey, and again, he's not one who loves to change up his starting lineup, but his starting lineup got worked in both halves that if the bucks are going to start Thon maker, that maybe you just start with the pocket center and go with uh, PJ Tucker. I also Valanciunas played 24 minutes Patrick Patterson, only 16 minutes in this one. I, I think he needs to play a little bit more. He's uh, struggled with knee injuries through the middle part of the year, and then with Ibaka on board is, has kind of been a little bit more of a forgotten man. But uh, I think his ability to switch, he could guard Giannis okay on some switches as well. He can guard Middleton okay on some switches. I'd like to see more time for him, less for Valanciunas. Although, I mean, they're probably worried about losing him, but you know what? It doesn't matter. This isn't a good fit for him in this series. And frankly, the whole East playoffs probably is not a very good fit for him at this point. The two series that he was good in last year were Miami, which didn't have any shooting. uh, And then uh, that series against the Pacers, which was a total rock fight. They were playing Miles Turner and Jan Mahimi. So uh, Valanciunas can't defend in the pick and roll and then wasn't able to take advantage. He had zero offensive rebounds in 24 minutes, despite being matched up against Maker, who is a you know a pretty weak defensive rebounder, given his lack of strength at this point. And it also tied in with something that you and I have harped on for basically the entire life of the Dunked On podcast, which is 
Valanchunas, other than his offensive rebounding, you know, he he does better when he gets some touches and when he gets some usage. And when they're playing Lowry and DeRozan together, those opportunities do not present themselves for Valanchunas. So what value is he really adding during those minutes? They did play well with him in the, on the floor to start the second. And I thought that Casey did well uh, to put, bring him back out there, get him a few minutes when Monroe was on the floor uh, because he knows he's going to close with Ibaka at center. Um, another thing that I thought was an issue again was uh, DeMar DeRozan for our, all of his skills. And he did get to the line for uh, 13 of 14 attempts, but went seven to 21 from the field uh, again was when they're kind of, Toronto is not that great of a team kind of swinging the ball around with some of their players because, you know, Joseph DeRozan and those two guys were in the game together for a lot of the time. Uh, Those guys just aren't good spot up three point shooters or like three or four times where DeRozan received the ball at the top of the key and just either shot a brick from three point range or just, you know, tried to drive back into traffic and allowed the defense to reset. The Bucks have a ton of length at the rim too, if you're going to try and drive in through a bunch of people. So uh, that again was a, a little bit of a problem. And I, I think, uh, you know, again, they got to get a little bit more shooting on the floor and a little bit more ball movement and uh, find ways to open up some corner three shooters. Like that's, what's going to be open against the box. If you move the ball and avoid turning it over, which they largely did. I mean, that was sort of the disturbing thing was uh, they only had 10 turnovers in this one, but they really were not able to beat the Bucks' switches or, or pressure and get any kind of good looks in that second half. Do you have a sense at this point? I've been struggling with this. I was talking about the game this this morning with people at the Warriors game and where kind of basically what you could see from game two that would make you kind of change from your current interpretation of this series. Well, what is my current interpretation? Just that uh, that I still think Toronto will be OK. Yeah, like I, I still think Toronto's the favorite in this favorite in this series, but I don't even think it's necessarily about the outcome. I I fully expect the Raptors to win game two, but if they struggle, if it's close and they struggle in crunch time offense, that's going to be something that concerns me. If they're if if they're still reluctant to make adjustments, like some of the ones that we've talked about, that's going to be a concern. But you know we'll, we'll see. I mean, they, Chris Middleton was successful as a distributor in this game, but. I thought that there were some of the shots that he got that he he definitely could have made. So I don't think it's impossible that the Bucks go up 2-0, even though it's not what I expect. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to panic here if I'm Toronto. They're not going to go 5-23. The Bucks uh, shot 39% on threes. They won't necessarily do that again. But, I mean, talk adjustments all you want. Uh, and, you know, the, the Bucks were effective on switches in this game, which was part of this. But... You know, Kyle Lowry is just, if he's going to go two for 11 again, and DeRozan's going to go seven for 21, those are your two best players. Like, you're not going to win. I think they can be a little bit better defensively, and they could put Tucker on Giannis a little bit more. I mean, Giannis was fantastic, but he did not really have much success trying to go one-on-one against Tucker due to Tucker's strength. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, their best players just have to play better. I mean, we've been talking about, oh, you should play this guy a little bit more and change around the rotation and blah, blah, but... You know, I mean, Lowry was 0 for 6 on three-pointers. Like, he's just got to make some three-pointers. And he just, for large parts of his postseason career, has not done that. So, uh, 
he he's he just has to play better and and DeRozan has to play better otherwise uh you know Serge Ibaka was great he had 19 points and 14 rebounds you know it wasn't he could have been a little better defensively but you know 36 minutes from him despite a, a sprained ankle when he got Bruce Bowen's uh no foul call on that one by the way there should have been one uh shooting at three I can't remember who it was who undercut him it was Giannis uh, but yeah yeah okay so it's uh you know maybe a little bit less Damari Carroll I, I don't know but it, it's boring to say, but those Toronto guys have got to just uh, play a little better. I mean, one thing I think we can look at, though, uh, Tucker did play 29 minutes, only two out of seven, and it wasn't that much of an issue in this game. But at some point, you know, his defense is great, but uh, teams are going to make him start hitting some shots, and he's going to have to do that. He's only one of four on threes uh, and, and has not been a great shooter in his career. Uh, before we move on to... A classic game, uh, Clippers and Utah. This from Betterment. It's never too late to save for retirement or other financial goals. I know a lot of my listeners maybe are out of college. You've got your first or second real job, and you finally got a stable income, got a little bit of savings, and you want to start investing for a goal. Maybe you're getting married. Maybe you want to get your first house. Uh, always rather difficult out here in the Bay Area if you happen to live out here for sure. Uh, but Betterment can help you with that. They are the largest independent automated investing service out there. They make it easier, more straightforward, and less expensive to invest. Uh, they're built on some smarter cutting-edge technology that brings you sophisticated investing and financial advice all at a lower cost than more traditional financial services. A couple of their products, Tax Impact Preview, which will tell you how any moves with, you might make with your money will impact your taxes. And Smart Deposit, where you can take any amount in your checking account above a certain amount that you need to live on, and it'll automatically invest that for you. So if you set that limit at, say, $5,000, uh, anytime you get more than $5,000 in your account, it automatically gets invested. So it's a, a great product for people who may have uh, less consistent income streams, such as uh, an independent operator like myself. So the way to get started with Betterment, betterment.com slash cap space can get you up to six months of no fees. Betterment.com slash cap space is that URL. Easy to remember because we talk about cap space all the time in the program. Betterment, investing made better. So let's talk about that last sequence in Clippers, Utah first. We know that Joe Johnson hit the winning shot, but I want to go back to with about a minute left. Utah actually led 94.89 by five. And after uh, a DeAndre Jordan loose ball foul got the Clippers the ball back, they ran a play that they like to run a lot where they will run a pick and roll and then uh, have DeAndre Jordan go screen for J.J. Redick. Derek Favors did well to take away the three that they were looking for as the clock went under a minute. Uh, but then Redick was able to blow by Favors and the Jazz no help whatsoever at the rim. And that cut it to three. And at that point, the Jazz tried to run it down. They got Joe Johnson isolated against Chris Paul on a switch. Chris Paul, one of the best guys his size ever on switches. He's really incredible. I mean, if you look at point guards, someone six foot tall, like there's no one else I'd rather have. I mean, you remember a few years ago, he actually guarded Kevin Durant uh, to some success. Uh he forced Johnson into a spin move by going for the steal, and then DeAndre Jordan perfectly timed his double team when Johnson's back was turned in the spin move, and uh, Johnson turned it over, and Blake Griffin was on the run. 
probably what was a good foul to stop the fast break with Griffin not an amazing free throw shooter, but he made both, and that brought the Clippers within two uh, as the Jazz failed to score, and then the Jazz inbounded to Derek Favors. There's a little bit of controversy as they tried to see whether uh, Favors was fouled before he released the ball. Uh, the referees rules that, that he did, and so he was shooting the free throws instead of George Hill. Only made one out of two, and that set up what was an amazing uh, final sequence. Yeah, so they they ran a they ran a dribble handoff to Chris Paul, and then j- I, I just thought that the way that they the way that they made created the opportunity for for Chris Paul was was pretty impressive, just in terms of the actions from DeAndre and Blake. And then he ended up making a tough floater. Do you remember how much time was left? I was thinking it was like like yeah, seven I want to say maybe like uh, maybe like thirteen seconds. And okay, it, was it was more than that. A play that was very reminiscent. Uh, what it was was they inbounded it to Blake Paul, I believe, was the inbounder, and then he was able to get the DHO from Blake on the run, go right into a pick and roll with DeAndre Jordan. They actually had Joe Ingles rather than uh, George Hill guarding Paul to get a little more length on him. And uh, but Ingles with that nice DHO action wasn't able to keep Paul out of the middle, and he made a floater off the glass, very similar fashion to uh, the one that beat the Spurs in 2015. Uh, but the problem was that there was still time left, and Quinn Snyder, great no timeout, uh, in contrast to Nate McMillan, and uh, they managed to get the, the matchup they wanted. Joe Johnson on Crawford with a small, small pick and roll, and. Early on, it looked like there was really nothing doing there, but they ended up getting what they wanted with Isolation Joseph on Jamal Crawford, two guys that have been... They they, they were teammates, right? Like I, I've, they've, uh, they've Yeah, lived, they were in Atlanta. That's right. They've for, lived uh, such uh, long NBA lives that I, I remember that happening, but it's just so long ago. And Johnson was able to, on the, to get to the place that he wanted to on the floor against the smaller Crawford, and... It was still a tough shot. Like that was, it was not a circumstance where you know it was like some something easy to go in. And DeAndre came over to help, and it just went just a teensy bit over his fingertips, bounced around, and went in for a, a, a an amazing end to the first day of the playoffs. Yeah, I was critical of the Clippers on the first watch of not getting enough help there, but I thought that they did actually. Uh, they had uh, Griffin had switched off of. Johnson and perhaps maybe that's what you would be most critical of is that still with you know in a tie game Utah is trying to run the time down to just give up and make that switch with nine seconds left and allow Joe Johnson all that time to go to work maybe you try to get through that screen if you're Blake Griffin uh but he was then guarding Ingles who's an excellent three-point shooter of course Griffin did dig down uh did not disrupt Johnson however and then Jordan came over Maybe he should have come just one beat earlier, but I mean, he was just a fingernail away from blocking that shot, as was Crawford, who actually got a pretty decent contest given his uh, size disadvantage. And Johnson, I mean, there's a photo of him getting absolute, in the Deseret News, getting absolute full extension on a floater, which is really tough to do to have some touch if you're getting that kind of an extension on a floater to get it over both of their hands. And just a fantastic shot, a little bit lucky to have it bounce in like that, but uh, as time expired and you, you know, th- that was spectacular, but uh, of course the game was marred much earlier, uh, 11 seconds into the game with uh, the unfortunate demise of Rudy Gobert. Yeah. 
fortunately, it sounds like it was less severe than we thought originally, just because it there doesn't look like there was ligament damage, but he still has a hyperextension and a bone bruise. And I haven't heard a specific timeline. I think that Quinn Snyder did not, has not given one yet, but my instinct is that he's out for the rest of the series. Yeah, hyperextension is always an interesting diagnosis because that's not really a diagnosis. That's just an explanation of what the mechanism was. And so at the very least, you'd think even if there isn't any ligament damage, there's got to be a lot of swelling in addition to the bone bruise. And it's not clear whether the bone bruise is from the direct impact that Bob Mute had or just, you know, something that happened in his knee as a result of that impact. But yeah, I mean, Snyder says we're not in a position to talk about that yet when he was interviewed today. And they certainly are going to want to keep it on the DL about whether or not he's going to come back, try to give the Clippers something to think about. But uh, the good news for Utah was that they got, if not the Derek Favors from last year, the Derek Favors who was able to provide competent center play uh, enough that they still defended this Clippers team reasonably well. They did, and Favors basically playing straight five in this game did a nice job of competing and contesting. And I also thought that Jeff Withy played, I think it was nine minutes, that he did a good a good job, especially considering it looks like he was out of their postseason rotation, to come in and, and just compete out there for the time that they needed him. Yeah, it was surprising that this, uh, this game was as low scoring as it was. Uh, low pace, of course, as, as many games involving the Jazz are. However... It looked like the Clippers really were going to run away with this one early. The Jazz were shell-shocked with uh, Gobert's injury, and then the Clippers were having a ton of success switching everything early. They led it 24-22, but it was just an absolute slog for Utah. Offensively, they had to go to George Hill, who played 37 minutes, and, and he hit a series of difficult mid-rangers. Gordon Hayward was totally stymied by Mbappé Mute in the first half, only got six shot attempts. Uh had five turnovers for the game, only 19 points on 18 shots for Hayward. And Bob Mute was particularly effective getting over screens. That was the one thing they weren't switching was when the five man was screening for Hayward. And Bob Mute was fantastic just staying attached to Hayward. And then as Hayward would try to rise up, really bothering him from behind with the, the length that he has. Uh, forced him into some ugly attempts where he would go up for the jumper and then realize Mbappé Mute was there and have to bail out of it. Uh, but the Jazz eventually found their rhythm in part once uh, the Clippers went to their bench to some degree. And uh, Johnson, of course, was key in that. Not only did he have the game winner, but 21 points overall, 9 of 14 from the field, 3 of 4 on three-pointers for Joe Johnson. And despite the Clippers bench players overall struggling a little bit, Jamal Crawford yet again had had some good moments against the Jazz. It was mostly in the first half. He ended up with eight points on just four of 12 from shooting. But it is still surreal to see him sometimes on the floor for clutch situations instead of Redick. Another interesting dynamic, Blake Griffin was awesome in the first half. I think he had 21 points, only five in the second half. Finished at 9-21 to 21 and mostly was doing it with the jump shot. The Jazz were packing the paint and Bob Mute. That's got to be a season high in minutes for him, 36 minutes. Griffin played 43 minutes. Uh, and uh, But they weren't guarding Griffin when he didn't wasn't involved in the main action of the play. They weren't guarding Mbappé Mute. And that just made it really difficult for the Clippers. And with Rivers out, I mean, they don't have any kind of a three-man who can play uh, regardless. 
on both ends. And now with Austin Rivers out as well, they really don't. And it's hard to see Rivers playing that much against someone like Hayward, who he would be at a massive size disadvantage against. So I think they have to play in Bamute. I mean, Wes Johnson, you know, did, they didn't even think about playing him in this game. They haven't been playing him at all, despite the fact he got a much larger contract than in Bamute. Uh, and it's too bad that he's not playing because I think he at least is the closest to providing some modicum of defense and maybe even uh, as a four on the second unit, they played Paul Pierce uh, who, who, for three minutes rather than play uh, Wes Johnson. So it was a, a very interesting dynamic for the Clippers. But, you know, even with Gobert out, uh, I mean, I'd shudder to think of how well they could score against them with Gobert in the game. Uh, but if Favors can give them just some decent uh, center play and then Favors was 7 out of 10 on his own, a, a lot of them just uh dunks on duck ins or you know short hook shots um you know i think the jazz can compete in this series how are you feeling about it now uh with if we're going to assume that gobert will not play again in the series or if he does play again is going to be pretty limited uh you know how do you feel about the jazz chances now Utah has a good game plan and a good approach and while losing gobert changes that's efficacy i don't think that it really shifts it that much it just lowers its probability of success the fact that the jazz won this game with lucas and bob mute doing a pretty good job on hayward is certainly concerning from the clippers end but at the same point you know the 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 jazz made 42 percent of their threes they were 8 of 19 from there and the clippers were 8 of 24 i expect both of those numbers to to regress a little bit back to their respective means and I think that the Jazz have a shot in this series, but I certainly wouldn't make them the favorites. Yeah, I mean, they still didn't get a ton out of Rodney Hood. I think they're going to have to get something from him. Uh, he was two out of seven, only played 19 minutes, got into foul trouble in the first half. You know, I'm not sure that uh, Joe Ingles, who also was two out of seven, uh, if they're going to have enough shot creation, I don't know if they can count on uh, – George Hill hitting some of the shots that he did. And, and of course, Hill, Favors, Hood, all of them have had their injury concerns. If those flare up again, if they can't be as effective, they do get a little bit of a break here before this next game, which helps them. Uh, but uh, I, mean, I don't know if all of those guys can play at the level that they played at in this one. And obviously, Johnson is not going to shoot it as well as he did. I mean, I, th I see this series really devolving into potentially a, a more of a defensive struggle uh, Chris Paul, of course, was brilliant. He had 25 points and 11 assists, was, was quite efficient. Uh, but, you know, I mean, he doesn't have any space to work. Uh, and Redick was benched a lot late. They went with Crawford instead. I mean, that's one. I mean, I know Crawford was plus 12, but he was 4-12 from the field. And there are just no planet on which Jamal Crawford should get more minutes than J.J. Redick. I, and, I mean, it all, a lot of this just goes back to shooting gravity. You know, I mean, Crawford... Not is uh, a decent open three point shooter. You don't want to just leave him, but he's not JJ Redick, number one. And Redick also executes defensively a little bit better. Neither of them can grab a rebound to save their lives. Uh, they combined for three rebounds in uh, 56 minutes. So uh, that's not very good. But the concept of gravity here is key because in Bob Mute and Blake Griffin, right? Like those guys combined to go four or seven on threes. And you're like, oh, well, those guys shot it well. Like they contributed from the three-point line. Yeah, but, you know, that's seven plays that they actually were efficient on. 
how many plays other than those seven did the fact that they don't shoot threes very well and aren't great shooters or you know are going to try to shoot long twos instead of threes mean that their men were able to muck up the main action and so just having a Bob Mute, Griffin and Jordan uh, out there is just makes it really hard you have a brilliance of Chris Paul uh, but uh, that makes it kind of difficult uh, even for him yeah I, I one thing I wanted to to mention was I thought George Hill played a despite Chris Paul's success offensively I thought Hill did a, a pretty solid job defensively on him no, I agree. I mean, it's not like Paul was killing them uh, for sure. And he had to do uh, get a lot of mid-rangers. And Griffin, again, he wasn't able to find space either. Dudu and Bamute had six turnovers uh, as well. So, And the Clippers overall, uh, their turnovers in the first half in particular, I think really helped keep the Jazz in it. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I agree with you that Hill was good. Uh, he's one of the better guys you would want out there trying to defend Chris Paul with his length and his ability to compete and get over screens, uh, not make mistakes, not foul. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, there's a lot of guys who you would point to on the Jazz that you could say were over their heads in the first game. Johnson, Hill uh, among them. And, you know, Griffin, Redick are guys you could point to who might play a little bit better in the the series going forward i do think the clippers have more talent but it seems clear to me that if they're going to go with Mbamute, whether he is more effective stopping hayward or stopping the clippers own offense will remain to be seen in the series and it's especially notable considering west johnson didn't play at all like it isn't even a circumstance where they were weighing one versus the other and chose Mbamute. they didn't even give west johnson a chance yeah well west i mean if you look at his game log really just has not been playing any kind of significant minutes in and recent we know weeks. Doc and I mean, Barry I mean, guys. He, he, against San Antonio and against Houston, he got into double digits. Um, but other than that, had not played double digits since uh, March 16th in terms of minutes. So I, I don't expect uh, Doc to uh, go to him anytime soon unless they get real desperate in the series. But obviously... Must win for the Clippers. I mean, I'm kind of expecting a Clippers blowout in game two. Um, but but this game, in a lot of ways, reminded me of the 2014 series against Golden State, where Andrew Bogut was out, the Clippers were significantly favored, and Golden State was able to come in and win in game one. And then, of course, got blown out in game two, eventually lost the series in a game seven. That was the Donald Sterling series, of course. But it had kind of that similar feel where it's like, all right, uh, Gobert is out like all right the Clippers and then the Clippers went up like you know nine to two or something and it's like all right you know Utah can't score uh, they're kind of eking out points uh, the Clippers aren't scoring that well uh, they'll pull away here in the second half we'll see what happens and then the Jazz just kept fighting all of a sudden they're up five with a, a minute left you're like wow Utah is gonna win this game yeah so now Boston and Chicago Chicago pulling the upset on the road in a game that we both thought was one of the more likely upset picks, but then as I talked through it, I kind of talked myself out of it and went with Bulls in five. You went with, uh, or I'm sorry, with Celtics in five. You went with Celtics in six, but it was a 106-102 Bulls victory over the Celtics. They actually led it somewhat comfortably down the end before a couple of late Jimmy Butler turnovers changed that. Uh, but, uh, I mean, what is your, your takeaway here? I mean, I asked you about... Uh, the Raptors, another favorite that lost. 
what about uh, the Celtics? What is your level of panic here uh, for the Celtics? Uh, you know, and, and well, I mean, I guess before I even ask you that, I should uh, mention, of course, the terrible circumstances uh, surrounding uh, Isaiah Thomas's family with his sister, China, at age 22, passing away in, in a single car accident. And uh, Thomas did play in this one, was outstanding, but obviously was very affected, as was uh, the, the whole garden crowd so our, our thoughts are with him and you know obviously if he feels he needs to take some time with his family uh that's uh something that i think everyone would completely condone uh, but if we'll assume that he's going to continue to play and and as he did in this game actually play really well uh how do you see this series going forward where is your celtics panic meter at 2.5. I don't I think that the the fundamentals of the series are still in their favor. The big concern, the reason why, you know, I I think that that there is a possibility that the Bulls really do some damage here is actually something that I I kind of mentioned in our in our preview and then got shot down on a little bit, which was the possibility of Chicago's offensive rebounding because they haven't been great on the offensive glass since they traded Taj Gibson and Doug McDermott to the Oklahoma City Thunder, but Robin Lopez was absolutely huge in this game. 14 points, 11 rebounds, 8 on the offensive glass. And my thinking and why it wouldn't be an issue, number one, as you mentioned, the Gibson is gone. And number two, I didn't expect Lopez to play 34 minutes because I expected he would not be able to guard Al Horford and that that would be an issue. But of course, the Celtics start Amir Johnson. Uh, so Lopez was able to match up with him a, a lot of the time. And then Lopez and Feed did stay on the floor, even with those Horford at center lineups. Uh, I mean, they, Johnson only played 18 minutes. Horford played 40. So that was 22 minutes when they had a, a shooting big on the floor. And there's more time even with Olenek as well. And, and Lopez was able to move well enough uh, that they didn't kill them from the three-point line. I mean, the Celtics did get up 38 attempts, but... Uh, made 14 of them, 37%. That's a totally good percentage. Uh, but Lopez, those eight offensive rebounds, overall, Chicago, 46% of offensive rebounds. And to put that into perspective, you know, 30% led the league this year. So, I mean, you're getting almost half your misses back. And in fact, in the first half, uh, when Chicago really did uh, mess the Celtics up a little bit, uh, they got over 50% of their uh, available offensive rebounds. Um, so, and they don't really have an answer for Lopez. This has been a problem for the Celtics all year. And so that's why you might look at it and say, hey, you know, uh, this is something that maybe is going to be more of an issue. Uh, and, uh, you know, Chicago may have found something here. I wanted to look it up. I mentioned this in passing and during the second screen show, but. Robin Lopez, when he was on the floor, the Bulls grabbed 47.1% of available offensive rebounds. And the only big on Chicago who had a higher rate there was Nikola Mirotic. And the reason for that was that he played more in the first half than the second. The first half was where they really put that damage in. It wasn't Nikola Mirotic that was doing most of the work. Yeah, and this would be a good time to mention what Bobby Portis gave the Bulls, another guy that I felt just wouldn't play that much in this series and would be too bad defensively. I figured Lopez, Bobby Portis, there's no way that the the Celtics aren't going to just light that those guys up. Uh, but when you score 19 points on 10 field goal attempts, three or four from three-point range, and grab nine rebounds in 29 minutes, and, and in fact, Portis blocked a couple of shots, including a big 
key one in the fourth quarter after on the Twitter NBA show, I killed his rim protection. Uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what, what you do defensively. So uh, for, and then Rondo had four offensive rebounds, you know, Butler had three, like that's probably not going to continue. Uh, but it, it's uh, definitely a concern for Boston. Uh, and especially because, you know, you could say, hey, you know, they'll play better. But, you know, Thomas, you you uh, had 33 points and was tremendously efficient in this one. Six assists, did have six turnovers. But, you know, aside from that, he only took 18 shots to get to his 33 points. You know, he wasn't the, the issue at all with their performance. It was really just, you know, I thought they could have scored a little bit better. But then, of course, the, the defensive rebounding as well and then they really struggled to stop uh jimmy butler as well who was fantastic in his own right uh with 30 points and uh, uh 9 to 12 from the foul line 9 to 19 from the field before we move on to butler i just want to say something that i enjoyed a lot about bobby portis's stat line so usually when a guy scores 19 points on 10 field goal attempts you go oh well he probably got a couple free throws to to augment that that happens to players all the time nope bobby portis did not attempt a single free throw in this game he was just, he just made three of his four threes and he made five of his six twos. Yeah. In fact, Portis, only two of his shots for the power forward were in the basket area. Instead, uh, four of four from mid range for Portis. He hit a couple of key pick and pops as it looked like the game might be getting away from the Bulls middle of the third quarter. And then, you know, obviously his three pointer was falling as well. He hit another one over Horford in a pick-and-pop situation where Horford closed out to him and looked to be in pretty good position. But when Bobby Portis is hot, he's going to jack it up. I think that's something that we've seen from him quite a bit. And he made up for the fact that Miritich really struggled one out of nine, oh, five from threes in his 19 minutes. And so to get that production, I mean, he's not going to shoot eight out of 10 again. For sure, but Miritich, you would think, won't shoot one for nine. I mean, he's always he's a pretty streaky guy, but hopefully would do a little bit better uh, for the Bulls. Uh, meanwhile, Rondo, an interesting line, 15 shot attempts in 27 minutes, and 12 of those were within eight feet of the basket. Uh, and he went six out of 12 on those, and, and then uh, also was 0 for 3 on three-pointers. And Dwayne Wade also didn't really get to the rim at all. He was relying a lot on the mid-range jumper, and the Bulls didn't have a ton of spacing out there. That's why Portis's efforts were so key. Weighed one of four at the rim, one of five for, for mid-range, and uh, one for two on threes. So, uh, you know, I think that Chicago did shoot a little bit better um, than might have been expected given some of their shots. Uh, but, you know, overall, if you look at it, we're only 43%. So some guys shot well, some guys didn't. Uh, Jerry Grant was another guy who was two for nine. But when you get 45% of your misses, you can deal with shooting 43% from the field. Right. And I think that's, it gave the, it gave them a margin for, error, which I think was survivable in this game. But I don't expect it to continue at that sort of a rate moving forward. And the concern though, and we talked about this live, but Boston's, you know, they, they have four guys in Horford, Jay Crowder, Isaiah, and Avery Bradley, four guys that should definitely be in their closing five. Yeah, yeah, four two-way guys, right? They don't have, the, but they don't have any more two-way guys. Johnson, Smart are kind of all defense. Linux is all offense. Uh, Jerebko is kind of okay defense, okay offense, but not that great at either. And so maybe eventually Jalen Brown will be that guy. Jalen Brown is not that guy yet. So they went with Marcus Smart. 
I can't say that he's the wrong choice because I can't identify a right choice, but right. that is a challenge for them in terms of the team building perspective. And that's part of the reason why you and I have both said that they're an unfinished product in that way. And they will get that fifth guy, but they don't have it this year. Yeah, well, can they get him before some of the their good players decline is another interesting question. But we talked about in this series who is going to win when the stars were off the floor. And Jimmy Butler, when he was on the floor, Bulls were actually negative three. Uh, they've been horrible with him off the floor all year. They're like negative nine per 100 possessions with him off the floor all year. And they actually won those minutes with guys like Grant, Portis, and uh, Cristiano Felicio who played well also. Uh, racking up uh, plus minuses uh, above 10. Paul Zipser gave them some good minutes. And then Isaiah, I mean, they were plus 12 when he was out there. He only played 38 minutes. uh, And that's an increase over what he usually does. But I know Stevens doesn't like to extend his minutes. He may have to just try and push it a little bit, even just use Thomas as a more of a decoy because with Smart initiating the offense, they just really weren't able to get much done, even though, Smart did go three out of seven on three-pointers. That wasn't enough. And and then I think they also need to uh, extend Crowder's minutes a a little bit more, although he had five fouls. That's probably why he only played the the 31 minutes. So hopefully he can play more. And, uh, you know, Gerald Green, Tyler Zeller, like those guys aren't going to help much. Brown, you mentioned him, negative nine, even though he was two of two from the field he had. A couple of bad plays was trying to guard Jimmy Butler, for example, uh, at the end of the third quarter. Uh, just didn't get out on him in the, in the late clock and gave up a three that was pretty lightly contested. Uh, so we'll see whether Braun is ready to contribute a little bit more. Maybe there'll be one game where he can play well in this series. But, uh, you know, if he's going to be guarding Jimmy Butler for big moments, I, I, I'm not a big fan of that if I'm Boston. We've danced around a little bit, but do you agree with my 2.5 or thereabouts panic level for the Celtics? No, I think it would be higher um, because, I mean, this Boston team isn't that good. Their fundamentals are not that good. And part of why they were able to get 53 wins despite a point differential in the twos was because they killed it in the clutch. And, you know, they actually did not play well in the clutch in this game. Uh, They are very reliant on Thomas and the Bulls did trap and take the ball out of his hands. The Celtics missed some key threes late in those situations. And then the offensive rebounding, I'm not sure if that's a problem that's going to go away. I think Stevens can design some schemes that can put Lopez and maybe Portis into some more difficulty, but you're not designing any schemes to put anybody in difficulty if Isaiah isn't on the floor. And I mean, the Celtics really offensively, Zach Lowe pointed this out in his piece, uh, his MVP piece, that the Celtics were every bit as bad offensively with Thomas off the floor as the Thunder were with Russell Westbrook off the floor. And I don't see a way for them to change that with the existing personnel. Yeah, and that's a fair point, especially if Isaiah's minutes can't really increase too much from where they are right now. Now, I do think that uh, Dwayne Wade, I don't expect him to play. I mean, he'll have a couple of games where he gets hot for mid-range, but I don't expect him to play all that much better than the 11 points on 12 shots that he had in this game. You know, it, like Smart is a pretty good matchup for him. Smart's strong enough to not get beasted in the post uh, and just force Wade into some difficult mid-rangers, which, you know, he hit in last year's playoffs, but, you know, I'm not sure how sustainable that was or is. Uh, so I, I do think that Boston can defend even better than they did in this game. I mean, it's surprising that these teams scored as well as they did. 
Um, so maybe that really is, is going to be where Boston has to come through is just defending better. But they did defend pretty well in the initial action. It was just the offensive board. So I guess the silver lining is, I mean, nobody gets 45% offensive rebounds game after game. And, you know, their defense was pretty good. Um, Jimmy Butler was held to some difficult shots. You know, he just made a, a lot of tough jumpers in the second half. You know, he's not going to do that every game. Um, won't get to the foul line as much. So I think there's reason for optimism. I think a lot of the, the things, but I mean, anytime you lose game one at home and you're just not that good to begin with, uh, you know, I think it would probably be at like a five for me. So is that high, that higher than for the Raptors? Yes, I, I think so. Uh, just because I think the Raptors uh, are better than the Celtics. I mean, the only difference is, you know, if Kyle Lowry just, you know, continues to not be good. I, I have a lot more faith in Isaiah playing well than uh, Kyle Lowry and Isaiah was fantastic tonight. Like, he wasn't the problem. Are you ready to move on to Rockets Thunder? Yeah, it was. This game was certainly anticlimactic. Uh, it looked like through almost the entirety of the first half that OKC was really staying with Houston. Then they scored the last five points of the quarter and then carried that momentum into the third quarter, really blew them out. And, uh, you know, it was, this was one that we turned the Twitter NBA show off on, you know, a couple of minutes into the fourth quarter. It reminded me in many ways of the Memphis-San Antonio game earlier. Agreed, where, agreed. Where the trailing team, the team that we both felt was the underdog, stayed strong. They played better than expected, but a big part of why they were doing well was the home team, the superior team, not making shots they usually make, not getting the looks that we knew they could create. And then the regression to the mean happened quickly, abruptly, and just restored order in the series. And while Oklahoma City is more capable of pulling the upset, both in an individual game and the series overall, I saw a lot of why I was more confident in the Rockets winning this series than I think some I, than some of what I saw other places. Yeah, I mean, some of the damage was a 118-87 Rockets victory. Uh, Russell Westbrook was completely shut down, 22 points, but took 6 of 23 from the field, and 11 of his 23 shot attempts were threes. He shot a mere 2 of 7 at the rim. He was well contested there, missed some layups as well, and then uh, 3 of 11 on those three-point shots, uh, 1 of 4 for mid-range. So just... And the problem was really not only did Westbrook just not shoot well, but uh, there was nowhere for him to go. And part of that was just, this is another one of those games where, hey, Andre Robertson, wow, I can't believe it. He shot four or six on three pointers. That's amazing. Well, that's six possessions. And the other 75 possessions that he was on the floor, James Harden just camped out in the lane on every single pick and roll. And it's hard to imagine a, a circumstance where that dynamic would change. Like, how many threes would Andre Robertson have to make to change that dynamic? I don't. I don't even know if it's possible. Yeah, he's not going four for six again in this series, and you know he still is a little bit gun shy on those shots. He can't shoot on the move. I mean, there's a, even if you leave him wide open and you throw it to him every time he takes so long to get his shot off and he lacks such confidence if he misses one that you know he's going to start record scratching you know it's not like you throw it to him every time and he can shoot it every time so that's an issue and then i think the other thing too is westbrook only seven assists in this game 
and you know there just aren't guys spotting up the middle was too clogged hardened for all of his flaws as a defender uh especially because he doesn't have to move as much as quite comfortable just helping off into the lane he's smart about it uh he uh, had three steals as a result of some of those activities beverly also really hounded westbrook uh used up a lot of his energy and then uh on the other end uh, the Oklahoma City pick and roll defense in the second half was absolutely atrocious. I mean, look at what their role men did in addition to Harden, who had 37 of his own points. Clay Capella, 14 points, 7 of 9 from the field. Nene, 15 points, 7 of 8 from the field. That's un- that's completely untenable, but especially when their offense is so unreliable. Yeah, that's right. And then you throw in that they didn't take away Harden either. You know, he he started off really poorly, but then, you know, it was very efficient through the last three quarters. And then Houston also got in the offensive glass for 14 rebounds. This is the Thunder were supposed to be out rebounding them. And uh, Ryan Anderson didn't shoot well, but he had three offensive boards. He did a nice job crashing and kind of a throwback to his early Orlando days. Uh, Capella was on the offensive glass and they had a couple of tip-ins. As well, and a lot of that again was due to the pick and roll. And Stephen Adams had a quote afterwards saying basically that like our pick and roll coverage sucked, and, and he was right about that. But uh, a lot of the pick and roll problems were defensively were when he was not in the game. When you mentioned Ryan Anderson's earlier Lander days, I was trying to think about if that was the last time he was on a team that won a playoff game. Oh yeah, it clearly is probably in because yeah. uh, they didn't in, win. They didn't win a game when he made it with the Pelicans. Yeah, no, I think twenty twelve was probably the last time. And, uh, yeah, you know, Anderson didn't shoot that well, but of course his spacing, I mean, he's the, the opposite of Robertson. I mean, the fact that he went one for six, you're still uh, guarding him, uh, over four on threes. You're still guarding him really closely. But uh, what I was trying to lead you towards is, uh, the pick and roll defense of Ennis Cantor. Oh, sweet Christ. I mean, so we talked about it. One of the fun, fun things about reacting to this game live was the, imminent realization that Ennis Canner should just not be on the floor when James Harden is on the floor because they know exactly what to do with him and there there is no solution there you can't put Ennis Canner somewhere else against the Rockets you can't do anything else he's just gonna he might not get spun around every single time but it's not gonna work yeah Harden vined him up uh R.I.P. Vine but uh Harden vined him up uh, just making him spin around before he went in for a layup off a pick and roll switch and really nothing that uh, Oklahoma city tried worked some of the switches. They would just end up committing fouls on Harden or just get blown by. And there wasn't adequate help because there's too much shooting around him or, you know, Cantor would just be involved in the, the role man would score every time. Um, I, I agree with you, although then even Patrick Beverly, who had 21 points in this one, was absolutely killing OKC and killing Cantor's pick and roll defense. The good news for Oklahoma city though, is I think that they have, some major adjustments that they can make in their rotation. I, I would start with, and also just that Russ is going to shoot better next game. And then Victor Oladipo, he was yeah, one out of 12. Uh, you know, he's going to be ready. 0 for 6 on threes, 0 for 3 on mid-rangers, 1 for 3 at the rim for his 1 for 12. So really just not getting good shots at all. So, I, I mean, you just assume those guys are going to play better, but uh, Donovan has to help them play better. And I think the way that he can do that is by, you know, actually putting some guys out there who can do something uh, offensively and then not playing Ennis Cantor as much defensively. And not playing Norris Cole and not playing Samaj Christian. 
Like they have they have a lot yeah. of players that just should not be on the basketball floor for a playoff game. And yeah, Doug McDermott uh, is not a perfect player, and Alex Abrines was worse in this game than he probably will be overall in the series. And but those guys provide value even if they're not making shots, just by forcing the opponent to actually keep human beings near them and away from everyone else. Well, and Taj Gibson only twenty one minutes. I mean, I mean to me. You know, I I think Cantor does provide something as a post-up guy. Uh, But again, now you're playing him without shooting around either, right? So how is he supposed to operate in the post when you don't have any shooting? You know, how is Westbrook, I mean, other than in transition, like they just couldn't get anything. And so Kristen shouldn't play at all. I mean, he played 14 minutes and yeah, he was one for one on three as he banked in a three from the top of the key. Congratulations. They're not guarding him. Like uh, having... And then Cole played another six minutes on top of him. For those guys to play a single minute with Westbrook doesn't make any sense. For those guys to play a single minute regardless doesn't make any sense. Go with oh, Victor wait. Oladipo at point guard. Before I forget, it was on a game we talked about a while ago, but we we forgot to mention George Hill's crazy catch-and-shoot three at the end of that game, which ended up being a really important shot, and I wanted to make sure that at some point in this pop massive podcast we talked about it. Yeah, it's not really catch and shoot. You just take out the end. It was like a catch shoot because <laughs> he was just in the air, just a great awareness, uh, knowing that the shot clock was winding down. What made you think of that? The banked in Samaje Kristen three. That, that would yeah. be an interesting contest to just have George Hill try to repeat that shot over and over again and just Samaje Kristen just shoot his regular shot and see who it could make more. George Hill wins. No question. <laughs> give, even give him like, yeah, put one second on the clock every single time and just he's going to win. Um, so you get those guys out of there completely. I mean, try and play McDermott a little more. I grant that he is going to be a liability or at the very least, you know, play Gibson more, play him at center more as well. Try to get guys out there because I mean, OKC didn't succeed in either of, of their objectives, right? Like, all right, you know, maybe our strategy is that we're going to play some just terrible offensive lineups and, Russell Westbrook will bring us home, and I grant, I get he didn't shoot that well, but you also gave up a buck eighteen to this Rockets team, and so now that that means that you just you're not getting the right defensive guys out there. I mean, they have the worst of both worlds right now with some of the rotations that they have, and I realize Robertson he's got to be out there. He does a nice job on, on Harden, uh, but he was still negative twenty four in this game, and so maybe go get Robertson out of the game a little bit more. Go to some more switching. Uh, as well, you know, maybe try Oladipo a little bit on Harden, give, give him a chance. Uh, Gibson at center can do some switching, maybe even try Jeremy Grant at times at center. Get some guys out there who really can switch and take away this pick and roll because, I mean, you know, we talked about worst of both worlds in terms of the offense defense. It was worst of both worlds in terms of the threes as well, right? Because they gave up 33 three-point attempts. The Rockets, until the very end, weren't hitting any of those. I mean, this could have been... The Rockets only hit 30% on threes. They still gave up a buck 18. Like, this could have been even worse of a slaughter, especially when you consider that, you know, Robertson was 4-6 or six on his three-point attempts. So, uh, I, I really... They've got to do something well in this series. They didn't do anything well in this game, whether it's due to Cantor, Cole, Kristen. Uh, but, you know, this will shock you, Danny, but the Thunder have uh, some players who are only good on one end of the court. Houston also missed eight free throws in this game. They, generally speaking, do not do that, especially with, with I think, Harden missed a couple off the top he of the He missed his first three free throws of the game, in fact, Harden did. So. Yeah, so that's also something that's going to improve. So, yeah, I mean, Oklahoma City will improve from here. My 
question, and I, I think I have a pretty good answer on this, is will that be enough? And I don't think it will be. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, you know, th- this is a disheartening game. There are some things that they can do better. But, you know, this is another one where we talk about all, all these things. Uh, and I thought in the Raptors game, uh, Lowry and DeRozan just weren't that good. You know, it wasn't that they weren't put in position to succeed. I think Oladipo and Westbrook, it's much harder for them to succeed. And then we talked about how both Westbrook himself and this Thunder team are kind of one note. If you keep them out of transition, which they got into more in the first half, you can just help off so many guys and clog the lane that it's just they're not going to be able to score efficiently. And maybe Russ can get hot from the outside. He can create those jumpers whenever he wants to. But, you know, he's not a great jump shooter. He's not going to win four out of seven games in this series just on jumpers. Especially not, you know, the the downside of being a six seed. They're facing a very, very good team that can scout them well and that knew that knew what they were doing. Yeah, I would be very interested to see, too, what would happen if, what if the Thunder just went with, like, an all-offensive lineup themselves? Like, what if they actually got, like, Aparinas, Oladipo, Westbrook, Cantor, and then maybe, you know, Robertson at the four or something? Or maybe Adams, Robertson at the four, Adams at the five, get some more shooting around these guys, especially when Houston goes to Trevor Ariza at the four, or even Anderson. You know, if they want to post up Ryan Anderson, hey, you know what, go for it. it will, that's a lot better than it. Uh, the other things that you're doing, just throwing it to the roll man for a layup or an offensive rebound every time. So I do think that there are some ways to go that Donovan can try get either get more offense on the floor. I think, I mean, that was the biggest surprise to me is that Oklahoma City, despite all the, the issues that they've had, that Houston was able to stop them. Houston is not a great defensive team, but uh, they had a great strategy. And I think it, it clearly uh, they won the coaching matchup in this one. Oh, yeah. And it's it's more than damning of their roster construction that your offensive lineup included two guys, even that version of like the let's roll the dice with this, included two guys who cannot shoot outside of like 10 feet. <laughs> uh, all right, I think that's about all I had here. I mean, and Houston, you know, like for them to win this going away without even shooting that well from three-point range, they got to be feeling great about it. And they got to be feeling great about the fact that Harden had to, such a good game uh despite the f- and got to sit out the end only 34 minutes despite the fact that robertson was guarding who who's given him problems uh, at times let's get to uh, atlanta and washington now before we'll finish up with uh golden state and portland i focused in on the third quarter of this one it that was really the time when uh, the wizards made their run it was a 114 107 wizards victory overall that third quarter, Washington outscoring the Hawks 38-28. And it was really John Wall in transition. Uh, and then Markeith Morris uh, hitting shots. At, uh, uh, he out, outplayed Paul Millsap today. Uh, those are the two things that really stuck out to me from this third quarter. Right. And the third quarter continued a story that was also true in the first quarter of the Washington starters just completely outplaying Atlanta starters. You brought up John Wall. I think Wall was instrumental in making that happen. And I'll say his final line just so we just so we have it out there in the record on this. 32 points, 12 of 24 from the field, 6 of 6 from the line, 14 assists, 4 rebounds, 3 turnovers, and one beautiful chase down block. 
Yeah, he had that one. He had a play where he crossed up Kent Bazemore and went in for a reverse. That was an awesome highlight. And just every time the Hawks missed in that third quarter, Wall was absolutely running it down their throats. And it was a layup or a three or a dunk for somebody in transition. I mean, I don't know how many fast break points they officially ended up with here. 25, which is a ton for a playoff game. Uh, And the Wizards' biggest lead was only 15, but they really led by double digits nearly uh, the last 18 minutes of the game or so uh Morris actually didn't wasn't as efficient as I thought he was 21 points 8 and 19 uh, from the field uh but they also Marcin Gortat had a, a very nice game with Jan Mahimi out uh 14 points on 11 shots for Gortat as he uh was excellent on the offensive glass with six offensive rebounds that's a uh an area in which he thought maybe Atlanta with Dwight Howard could be dominant on the glass but that was not the case in this one it was also impressive to see Morris shoot 8 of 19 from the field, considering it seemed like he would be exhausted from mauling Paul Millsap on seemingly every single possession. (laughs) Yeah, well, it was, uh, and Gortat actually destroyed Millsap with the dunk as well. Uh, Millsap, for his part, did actually have an efficient game. I mean, it's, it's tough because Millsap is not a player who, you know, he can score efficiently, finish some plays, and he ended up with 19 points, only had eight shot attempts from the field, got to the foul line 11 times. Um, uh, but he was negative 20, and he's not a guy you can necessarily run the offense through. Uh, the Wizards' D was not amazing in this one. You know, Dennis Schroeder got loose for 25 points and nine assists, uh, but was a negative 11 himself. Uh, Howard wasn't really very good either. He was negative 21. Uh, but you know, the wizards, they don't need to defend incredibly against the Hawks. They just need to outscore them. And you'd hoped that the Hawks maybe could do a little bit more defensively against the wizards. That was not the case for this number four ranked Hawks defense. How juiced are you as a wizards fan right now at the beginning of the day, you see you, they play, they play well against the Hawks. You know, I thought, I thought this was a strong performance by them. And then later you see the team that you're probably going to face or the team, the teams that you're most likely to face in the one eight, neither of whom particularly impresses. I mean, that that's exactly as a four seed. You can't really expect that duel that duel to happen. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, just not blowing it in your first game at home. It seemed like their crowd was really into it. They really enjoyed Wall's performance, a Wizards crowd that's uh, been criticized throughout the year. Uh, Looked like they showed up pretty well. And just to win game one, not have any huge hiccups when you're hosting your first playoff series since 1979. That's incredible. Uh, that then when they made it to the finals with like Wes Unseld and uh, Elvin Hayes on that team, um, ended up losing the Sonics after they'd won it the previous year. What did you take away from this game for the Hawks? I mean, for for me, it was just that, you know, their bench can be an advantage, but their starters aren't, and this is the playoffs, so the bench doesn't matter as much. Right, and Dennis Schroeder, you know, offensively, other than a couple of turnovers, you know, he was more efficient as a scorer than he almost ever is. He only had two turnovers. I don't know why I thought it was more than that. I think it's because both of the turnovers were kind of bad. And they still didn't couldn't generate enough reliable offense. Like you sit there and the the concerns that were there for Atlanta, especially for their starting five, were just present. And they didn't even they didn't start Baysmore. He still did play plenty of minutes. He played 27 minutes in the game, did have that kind of the struggles against Wall early in the third quarter. And there are adjustments that they can make, certainly. But I'm 
unsure if those will make the difference. Yeah, especially because they can just play their guys more minutes. I mean, Wall only played 37 minutes in this one. Uh, you know, he could ramp that up a little bit, probably. Interestingly, uh, Calderon played eight minutes. He was negative three. Schroeder played 36 minutes. He was negative 11. So they had a short period of time, uh, about four minutes, in which they're plus seven without playing a traditional point guard at all. I think they just went with Bazemore guarding the one and just decided, hey, we're going to, uh, and that was mostly with Wall out of the game, to be fair, but just say we're going to defend a little bit better. We can do a little bit more switching. I do think that if I were the Hawks, I've been saying this since the preview that Calderon is not any good. I would be playing Malcolm Delaney instead, who at least can defend a little bit more, give you a little bit more pace to the offense than Calderon. Um, and Mike Muscala was outstanding. He was plus 20 in 13 minutes. Maybe they got to give him a little bit more of a look to, to spread the floor, but you know, defensively, he's not going to be good enough against some of Washington's main units. And, you know, I'm not really sure where they go from here. Tim Hardaway was uh, seven points, two of 11 from the field, and he was pretty awful defensively. He couldn't hit any of his six three-point attempts. And Schroeder, eight out of 16, three of five from threes, and only two turnovers. Like, he's probably not going to play that well again next game. Um, Torian Prince was solid. That was good to see, 14 points for him. And that's nice for Atlanta's future. I really liked the way that Prince's three-point attempt looked. He sped up his release, and uh, he was two of four on three. So uh, that's a reason for optimism that he played well. But, you know, I, I don't really think that Atlanta can do much better uh, offensively than they did this game. Maybe they can hope to play better defensive. But uh, they also attempted I mean, 39 yeah. free throws in this game. They had, they had, they had 15 more free throw attempts or 15 more free throw makes then Washington had attempts and still scored 107 and lost by seven. Yeah, you wouldn't expect there would be that friendly of a whistle in their future. I mean, they don't have, I mean, Howard will get fouled every once in a while, but they don't post him up anymore. Millsap, 11 free throw attempts is probably too much to hope for from him. Schroeder, not a guy who gets fouled a ton either. So yeah, that's a great point that they got fouled a lot. And it's just, I mean, their starting lineup is not that good. They don't have much star power. And yeah, they have a solid bench. I mean, their bench has kind of outplayed their starters all year, at least, you know, from a relative standpoint. But, you know, that's only 10 minutes a game, really 15 minutes a game at the most that the bench heavy units are going to be out there. And that may not be enough. Um, I thought that Kelly Oubre had some moments in this one. He had 11 points, uh, played some minutes down the stretch in that 31-31 final quarter. Uh, as they really went small down the stretch. Uh, his defense looked good. He guarded Schroeder for a while as well. So that's something we may also look for. Uh, but I'm not really sure where the Hawks can go from here. I mean, maybe more minutes for Millsap would be a start, only 34 minutes. It's uh, Budenholzer has always been famously very reluctant to extend his guys' minutes in the playoffs. And, like, you know, Greg Popovich will play Kawhi Leonard a lot of minutes in the playoffs. Like, this is uh, – and, and – Paul Millsap uh, is about to be a free agent, so you might as well play him a, a few minutes because I, I have this uh, feeling that he may not be back, uh, especially if you know this series continues to go uh, the Wizards' way. But yeah, the, the Hawks will have a chance in game two. Maybe the Wizards, who have been a little bit inconsistent this year, relax a little bit and they can steal one and make this a series. But I thought the Hawks played pretty well, especially offensively, and uh, didn't have much to show for it in this game. 
Yeah, that was one other point that I want to discuss is so 538 right now has the Wizards as having the third best odds of winning their series of anybody behind the Warriors and the Spurs and at 86%. I think that's a little rosy for me. I would probably have the Rockets above that just personally. I just see some structural stuff, but I guess it is true that three of the higher seeds already lost. That's true. And also the Hawks had a, a really poor point differential this year as well. I mean, they're by far the worst fundamentals of any uh, playoff team, even uh, the below 500. Uh, uh, maybe they were exactly 500. Um, the, the Bulls uh, were, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, and Portland as well, I think. Uh, this this is the first year in a while, I think. Do we have no playoff teams that are below 500 this year? Correct. Yeah, I, I found that out when I did the kind of the breakdown of the top 16 format that realized that yeah, the the seventeenth, but the seventeenth team in the league this year had a seven, had a forty one forty one record. All right, last game that we'll talk about. We were there in person at Oracle Arena for Golden State and Portland. Uh, this was another one where you felt like uh, Golden State, in large part, took the opponent's best shot, and uh, in the end, it really didn't end up being bothered by it too much. Uh, a great defensive fourth quarter holding Portland to 21 points uh, ended and some of those were garbage time late too or relative garbage time as they're down by more than 10 in the last couple of minutes uh what are your overall impressions from this one I know you've written in and podcasted about this one already CJ McCollum was absolutely spectacular in that first quarter and Portland's guys in a parallel to some of the other best backcourts in the league including the one they faced in this game they can succeed against good defense and they can succeed against bad defense. And I thought CJ, particularly in that first half, was doing it both ways. He was really doing a nice job. Coach Nick had one that I actually used in my write-up for The Athletic. It was a He basically said, like, people need to appreciate how hard this McCollum shot is. And I agreed with him and, and, post, and included the video in it. And he had a few of those that were just over a nice contest. They did an interesting thing about attacking Draymond Green in isolation so they couldn't use him as a help defender. thought that was compelling. But then that beginning of the fourth quarter, when the Warriors were with that second unit, no Curry, no Durant, and just completely shut Portland's offense down. And both Lillard and McCollum were on the floor for most of that. Lillard sat for the first three minutes, and CJ was out there for almost the whole time. Yeah, CJ at one point, uh, and we'll get to that fourth quarter, but I want to talk about he and, and Lillard's performance a little bit more since you brought it up. Had 27 points in 14 minutes uh, at one point in this game, and just the shot-making that he was showing in that early part of the second quarter uh, was just outstanding floaters. I mean, there, it's not like he was getting wide open. He was getting to his spots, to be sure, but uh, he was fantastic. And one of the things that both he and Lillard had a lot of success with is Lillard got into the act with some deep three-pointers in that second quarter as well, uh, was their execution just of the simple pick and rolls was excellent. What they would do is get a screen, and in any situation where Golden State's big was hanging back a little bit, they tried to bring him up to the level of the ball, and that worked a little bit better than having him hang back. But uh, what they would do is they would curl off of the pick and roll really tightly and do what's called snaking it. And so what that does is it really gets the guy who's trailing over the screen off your back. And because the bigs weren't quite up high enough, or if they were up high enough, they were just letting the guy cross over and snake back in front of the pick. Uh, that enabled them to just get these open mid-rangers because uh, the big didn't want to come out too far. And 
the guy guarding him a lot of times was Steph Curry trying to guard McCollum, just couldn't get around the screen. And actually what Draymond Green praised David West for was getting up higher and not letting them do that, keeping them basically, you know, going one direction off the pick. And that enables the guy who got screened off to stay competing and stay a part of the play. Whereas if he can kind of curl off it really tightly, now he just, it, it becomes a one-on-one with him in the big. So that's a West was pretty effective there, but I like Portland's execution in that respect. Uh, but you, you knew at halftime when Damon CJ combined for 48 of their 56 points and they were still tied that really, you know, Golden State had taken their best punch and it was only a matter of time. Well, the Warriors had, I think it was 10 turnovers at halftime, eight of which were live ball. And, yeah. you and they're all fouling those... the shit out of them too, just like bad <sighs> fouls on jumpers. Yeah, your favorites, fouls on jump shooters. I know, I know that's a, a deep passion of yours. And so <laughs> we'll we'll get we'll get to the fourth quarter, but kind of as a lead into that, Draymond Green was not the only great defender for the Warriors during this stretch, but he was remarkable. Had those two absolute highlight blocks, but his overall stat line in this game, it was close to some real history. It was great in and of itself, and I don't think the stats explain it, but I think that I think that you have to say it just so it's out there. 19 points, 6 of 10 from the field, 3 of 4 from 3, 12 rebounds, 9 assists, 5 blocks, 3 steals. So he was 1 assist short of a triple-double and three a 2 steal short of a 5x5. Five five. Yeah, he was fantastic. I mean, the two blocks he had, one uh, on a 2-on-1, he just packed Vonley's dunk attempt. And then the amount of ground that he was able to cover on that block of Lillard's dunk attempt... I mean, that was one where he was in the strong side corner, which you normally don't leave, but he was guarding Harkless. And Lillard went right down the middle of the lane, and Green just reacted so quickly, got there, and uh, just put Lillard's dunk attempt back in his face. An incredible play by him. And it was really a great defensive performance. You remember that one of Portland's big problems in the series against Golden State last year was an inability to finish at the rim. Same problem in this one, 14 out of 28 was all they could manage. They did shoot it well from floater range. Uh, both Dame and CJ were hot there, 9 out of 17. Uh, and then from three-point range as well, Portland, 11 out of 30. So they shot it pretty well. They got up a, a fair number of attempts. Uh, but you know Lillard and McCollum, again, made seven out of those 33s. It was a similar problem to the one we talked about with Memphis, where you know if your main guys are taking all the threes, uh, you know, you need some guys who can make spot up shots. And Alan Crabb wasn't really able to get open. He had a couple of threes that he couldn't make. Uh, he's really their only reliable guy uh, as a spot up threat. You know, Turner hit a couple, but you know, again, that's one of those ones where they help off him all the time. He made two out of his three threes, but what about all the plays where he wasn't taking a three? And then you know, Aminu, he doesn't even want to shoot threes anymore. He he was really ugly, Harkless uh, after avoiding shooting any threes because he had a $500,000 bonus in his contract for shooting 35%. And if he had gone like missed one, uh, he would have lost it. Uh, didn't look like he was very hot, uh, a little rusty on those threes. He was one out of six. So those support guys didn't do well. And then uh, Portland's bigs were horrendous offensively. Myers Leonard played seven minutes. Uh, he had two turnovers, had a couple of times where he got thrown the ball into the basket and just was totally hopeless, couldn't even go up with it. And then Vonley was one out of five from the field in his own right, and they just weren't really guarding him on the pick and roll either. So it was, uh, and and then really they played 
18 minutes in this one with either Harkless or Aminu at center. Uh, and they were actually pretty good in those minutes. They stayed about even, but you know that's a lineup that you're just going to struggle to defend. And that was the other thing that really struck out to me was uh, their defense in the second half just wasn't good enough after I thought they did a pretty decent job in the first half. I agree with that, and it's... So I I actually use this as part of the every player thing that I do for the athletic that it's sort of appropriate that Kevin Durant was fabulous in this game and still was not the story and that his team was able to win, you know, able to win with a big fourth quarter run. And he was he did his thing. He was successful. He looked better. This was the best game he's had since he returned. But, you know, he, he, he it was it wasn't his story, but he was still an important part of the win. Well, actually, you know, it's funny because he maybe wasn't the key storyline in this game, uh, but I thought actually that him playing well in this game is the biggest long-term thing. I mean, they're gonna they're right. gonna beat Portland in this series, but him, I mean, he's playing with that knee brace on his left knee, and defensively, his slides are not as quick. You know, there's a couple times he really got beaten off the dribble pretty badly. Um, especially when he has to slide off that injured knee going left to right. You know, it didn't look quite as comfortable. But offensively, he looked like himself in this one. I mean, especially he was just raining fire for mid-range on the right side of the floor. And another thing that was a, a key component was they scored pretty well when they went with green at center, which they did for about 12 minutes in this game, uh, the last six minutes of both halves. And it's the first time we've really seen KD go to work in isolation with all that shooting around him. And then you can't bring any help and KD just scores every time, uh, you know, whether it was getting to the basket uh, or just going to work uh, on those mid rangers shooting over his guy. I mean, even someone like Harkless or Amino, those guys are six, eight, Kevin Durant is six, 11, seven foot. And he's got a, a ridiculous wingspan. Uh, so good to see KD back. I mean, it's not like, you know, Portland, Evan Turner, those guys I mentioned are, are some great defenders that really are going to give him, a ton of problems, uh, but he he looked pretty much like the same guy that he's been offensively uh, for most of the season. We'll see if that continues against a stouter defensive team. Well, he was an absolute demon in transition early on, and the Warriors had those turnover issues. Durant actually had a couple of lazy passes that contributed to that in that first half. And Portland, there is no answer for that with with their team. You know, they don't have that. You know, Al Farouk Aminu is probably the closest thing they can get to somebody who can deter him at the rim. And Al Farouk Aminu is not going to deter Kevin Durant in transition. So they're just going to have to kind of deal with those circumstances. The goal is always to get the Warriors to run as little as possible. But that's far easier said than done. So we'll get to some little thoughts here uh, to wrap up uh, on this one. Uh, Portland's defense uh, was solid in the first. They only gave up seven shots at the rim in the first half. Uh, but then, especially going into the third quarter, Steph Curry got to the rim at will at the start of the third quarter. I think he had four layups uh, right in the start of the, the first quarter off the dribble. And then uh, they really started giving up a lot of back cuts as well. Curry was excellent for those. Uh, Kevin Durant posting up was able to set guys up as well. So Portland really lost their connectivity defensively in the second half uh they also would be smart to just never go for an offensive rebound with Noah Vonley I mean Vonley is trying to get in there one on threes just and and nobody else from Portland is even sticking around so even if Vonley gets a hand on it all Golden State has to do is just get a hand on it themselves just tip it away from him and they know that one of their teammates will be there might as well just send Vonley back at that point uh JaVale McGee brought some nice energy I thought uh for 
Golden State. He did. And he Draymond actually talked about that after the game. And I I thought it was interesting that he so they asked kind of like what happened in the fourth quarter and Draymond went with the crowd and then he went with JaVale and the crowd part, you know, that that's something that PR savvy athletes do. But JaVale brought a lot of energy and he had a couple the sequence that really stood out to me was he blocked. I think it was Lillard. He blocked Lillard on a play and then hustled down the floor and it produced an open clay an open clay three that he actually rushed he missed the shot and even though mcgee it was sort of good fortune that the ball bounced to him but he worked his way all the way down the court fought for that rebound then passed it out to steph curry who nailed a three and the crowd went absolutely bonkers and the other guy we have to mention off the bench i thought it was one of the best games he's played as a warrior was ian clark who strangely enough has had three of the best games he's played all season against the portland trailblazers but i thought he provided good minutes in that key fourth quarter stretch and then was I thought he was nice in the second quarter as well. Yeah, they were hiding him on Evan Turner. I think that that, in terms of adjustments with that unit, might be something that they would want to go to. Clark, not really good enough to defend Lillard or McCollum. I mean, if you Steph Curry struggled in that a little bit on McCollum because they started Clay on Dame. Uh, if you think Steph Curry is bad, wait till you see Ian Clark try to defend either of those guys. So they hit him on Turner. And I think Turner could actually get into the post on Clark. Uh, that could help slow the game down a little bit as well. Turner, not a guy that I love there, but he is a good passer. And I think th- he could force a double team uh, against Clark a- at least a few times. Um, another note that I had, a strategy that Stotts appeared to try was he played Pat Connaughton four minutes and Shabazz Napier 10 minutes and when those guys got inserted into the game, because they really, you know, they didn't play any of these bigs, uh, the strategy appeared to be because they were hiding Steph Curry on those uh, two guys to immediately try to go with a small, small pick and roll, get Steph Curry in an ISO and pick up some fouls on Steph. And Steph uh, did oblige, not necessarily in those situations, but uh, he did have in this one five fouls, many of his usual stupid variety. And he should have gotten a foul. It was late in the, I think it was late in the second quarter on a Connaughton corner three, fouled him twice. Yeah. So, and picked up another couple of fouls, just, you know, trying to body up on the perimeter. It's always that kind of crap. Uh, You know, a couple of them were, were ticky tack fouls. And I thought overall, there were too many ticky tack fouls, especially off ball called in this game where, I mean, you know, I'm all for calling it when there's legitimate holding, but you know, these were not calls that really involved legitimate holding and, but that is actually really one of the biggest Warriors' weaknesses. In a lot of their games last year in the playoffs, when they had meltdowns, it was the result of Steph Curry getting into early foul trouble. Game six in Cleveland being a, a prime example of that. Um, what do you think that there is for adjustments going forward here uh, from Portland's standpoint? It's tough because they got so many, so much of a performance from Lord and McCollum. Both those guys played well. I think. More Alan Crabb would would certainly help just because he's a reliable shooter and they can use yeah, him as only kind 22 of a- minutes for Crabb. I mean, why not just play? I mean, they have Dame or CJ on the floor at all times. Why not just give all 14 of those minutes you gave to Napier and Connaughton to Alan Crabb? Right. He's better defensively than either of those guys and he's a better shooter. And then Crabb only I- played 22 minutes. I think that they're on the right track with yeah, as long as Nurkic is out and we don't know how long that's going to be with kind of limiting Vonley and Leonard both those guys are exceedingly imperfect in this and they did this a fair amount but just 
ruthlessly attack Zaza Pachulia in pick and roll whenever he's on the floor. Yeah, that, that was a good idea. I mean, Pachulia is an underrated pick and roll defender. In some ways, he'll get up to the level of the ball and he uh, is able to play the angles pretty well. Even had a couple of nice traps. A lot of teams will do this where uh, if you can force a guy towards the sideline on a pick and roll, then it's just an automatic trap. If he's within a certain distance of the sideline, they got a couple of turnovers off of that. Um, I also think that something the Warriors will look to exploit a little bit more is they just were kind of, Vonley in particular was just hanging back off of Pachulia. They didn't really switch involving Vonley, uh, which was a surprise to me because he actually was pretty effective down the end of the season, especially in that game at home against Utah that I was at. Uh, they didn't try to get him in switch situations at all. And in fact, Vonley was just hanging back you know, in the paint as Zaza would just crush guys with screens either on and off ball and got a wide open looks for three. I mean, the Warriors didn't go to that too much with Steph. He had a couple of early threes with that. But, you know, when Bonley is in the game at center, it seems like if he's just going to hang back in the paint, they should just be running that uh, even more. Uh, another note I had, this is an adjustment, but I thought CJ McCollum actually defended Clay Thompson pretty well in this one. I agree with that. And he had one play where he fought through the screen and then some people said he fouled him on the shot, but it looked, it did. I, it's hard to tell. And that's one of the challenges. Some people complained about some of the things we were saying about fouls. You do see it very differently in the arena than you do on television, especially, I mean, with or without replay, just the angles you have are very different. Yeah. So other than that, I'm just, I'm not really sure what Stotts can do. I mean, he's played this Warriors team many times. We're familiar with the personnel that he has at his disposal. Turner, in theory, gives him another versatile guy, but he's also another guy that you don't have to guard. And by the way, you remember how like Evan Turner was supposed to be like this panacea to like run uh, Damon TJ off the ball so much? Yeah. I can't remember one time when they did that. I mean, Turner in this one, it did have four assists, but I don't remember any times where he was like setting guys up uh, by making the play. So uh, that whole narrative was always kind of hooey to me, and and uh, you know not particularly worthwhile. I mean, I, what do you? What's your feeling on Nurkic? Do you think he comes back in this series or no? I mean, we haven't heard any reports of him working out. Uh, you know, I didn't see him doing anything pregame. I don't know if you did. Um, I did. I, I've heard some stuff about him him doing some like shooting and that sort of stuff actually shortly after the injury. I think I heard that. Uh, I think Eric Gunderson brought that up when we did a podcast together. My instinct is that he's back for game three, but I have no knowledge on that. That's just just my kind of just the way I'm feeling on it. Yeah. And a fracture, a stress fracture for a big guy is not something that you really want to mess around with, especially because he's had knee problems in his career. They're already down to zero. They're not going to win this series. Um you know, why risk it with him? I mean, they found something with him. Uh, and also this is not, I mean, I think he'll make a difference because he's actually like a big who can make a layup, which, you know, they haven't actually had other than Ed Davis, who doesn't play that much against the Warriors. And he's obviously out for the year now too. Um, so that he'll help them a lot more offensively than he will defensively. I think defensively, you know, he'll have some problems and I could see him getting in foul trouble. I don't see him being in shape either. Uh, at this point. So, I mean, if they can take game two somehow, maybe that, that calculation changes a little bit, but you know, I, I, and I certainly didn't get the impression he's like imminent to play in game two on Wednesday. That's for sure. Well, a point that I made uh, that I think is really important here in terms of the, when I did the podcast with Eric for locked on blazers was the upside in this series is, is with bringing Nurkic back is low, but also the downside of anything happening is really high because something that 
I've noticed over the course of, of years is that a really important time for development and work is the first off season after a new system or a new coach or a new team. Sure. And that's what Yusuf Nurkic is going to get. And if he has any sort of a re-injury, you push that timeline back. Now he knows where, where he needs to be in terms of Terry Stott's offense. They're going to have a lot of continuity for next year in terms of what they want him to do. And you want him to have this full offseason to be the best player he can be because that is your way of moving forward. The only way that you can become a team that hosts playoff series beyond Lord and McCollum just having the season of their lives is by Yusuf Nurkic being a central piece in it like he was for them when he played after the All-Star break. All right, that's a, a good one to close on here. Uh, thanks so much for listening. If you watch the Twitter NBA show, we appreciate that. Uh, if not, check it out. Hopefully you thought uh, our little snippet of it to start things off here was interesting. And uh, our schedule on that for the upcoming week, uh, I will be doing a solo edition for Pacers, Cavs, and maybe a little bit of Spurs, Grizzlies tomorrow. And then Danny will be joining me as well uh, on Tuesday. Uh, will not be doing one on Wednesday with the Warriors home game, but then probably Thursday as well, we'll be doing one. So looking forward to that, uh, getting a little bit more of an audience uh, over 20,000 for this episode. We thought that that was pretty cool and they're fun to do. So we'll hope you'll join us on that. Follow me on Periscope at Nate Duncan NBA or click on the Twitter mobile bell next to my name. And there's a drop down menu that allows you to get notifications whenever I go to live video. Also, Thank you for patronizing our sponsors, Betterment. Betterment.com slash Capspace will get you up to six months of no fees of uh, lower cost automated investing. And Texture, you can get up to 14 free days and it's only $9.99 per month after that uh, of hundreds of magazines on your tablet. Texture.com slash Capspace is the URL there. Thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you all next time.